Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 105. The long-awaited time has come. I'm finally doing it. I'm picking up the reread again. Well, not just me. We are picking up the reread again. I think it's been like a couple years since volume 21. If you can believe it, it's it's. I, I listened to the episode the other day, and I was we, like, "We uh, we adopted Mira's uh, release schedule for the reread." So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. So yeah, it's been a while, and I'm I'm not going to apologize for it. Normally, I'd say, "Hey, I'm sorry, guys. I'm not sorry. I don't like doing these." <laughs> you should apologize. <laughs> I know people like them. They're a pain to do, as evidenced by my like four thousand words worth of notes we got here. This is going to be a good episode. I'm just telling you, I'm I'm kind of grinding my teeth over here. As I'm taking notes on this volume. You mean when we do half this volume, if that? <laughs> oh my god, I'm going to try, guys, listen. I'm going to try to get through the whole volume today with the exception of Snow and Flame, which is just, it's too dense. to. Pa- anyway, we'll get there. Listen to the show, you're going to love it. Volume 22, to frame this up a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about the volume. So this covers uh, episodes 177 to 186, and it was released from March to August 2001. I just think it's interesting to think about the time in which this volume came out because similar to volume 21, to me, 21 kind of represents the beginning of the Berserk community reading this series episodically. That's pretty much where it started. A little bit into volume 20, but I have very, you know, vivid memories of each of these episodes coming out still. So some of my memories of the episodes are of the what will happen next variety instead of the complete volume variety. Also worth noting about this volume is that the two episodes that are at the end, Snow and Flame, um, those were actually published in a different order when they came out in Young Animal. Weren't they first? Yeah, they were first. So they are episodes 177 and 178. Uh, And if you remember, 21 ends at 176. So in sequence, Snow and Flame should come at the very beginning. It was moved to the very end. I'm assuming for pacing reasons, because this volume opens up with Millennium Falcon starting properly, um, with this you know nice thematic start to Millennium Falcon instead of this kind of interstitial thing. So they just moved it to the back. But yeah, it makes sense honestly yeah. for the beginning of the new arc, and it's so momentous that uh, I think it would have been a mistake to have uh, you know that little side story uh, come first. Actually, Mira's done it uh, a few times since yeah. then, too. It would, it would have been a disservice to both uh, the main story as it was progressing and to that flashback. So I think, yeah, it's much better where it is. Oh, yeah. I've, I've got no qualms with it. I just think it's interesting. I mean, it's one of those... It is a kind of a rare editorial change, Um that's made for publications. It's, it's worth pointing out, I think. Yeah. So um, we always talk about the covers, and uh, this one is absolutely one of my least favorite of all the covers. Um, it's <laughs> Especially because there's a way better image inside, like one of the posters. Both of the covers and the, the volume posters are, are great. Yeah. This is just so fucking boring. And, like, there's no real composition to it. It's just there's no design decision being made. It's just here's two characters. Like with this awkward arbitrary hey, pose they're, for both of them. They're back to back. That's telling back me. Back to back, These guys bitch. are, they're not seeing eye to eye. <laughs> it's a completely abstracted scenario. Like they're just there in the middle of nothing in this gradient background. I'm it's not just, a fan of the, the let's really bash this. I, yeah, <laughs> also, I, got, I got some stuff prepared. Yeah, I'm also just not a fan. It's not my favorite uh, rendering of Guts either, especially. Uh, Griffith looks okay, uh, technically, but it's not like an inspiring 
you know, picture of him. I mean, he's there. We can say that about that. He's he's right there on the page. Right. It, you can <laughs> nice little crotch shot there. Oh, that's good. In in the defense of this, I do think it just sort of it does thematically set up sort of what we're going to be seeing. It does, I yes. think, effectively yeah. do that. When I when it I is. think of this cover, now maybe it's just because I know what's inside the volume, but I do see this cover and I get excited about what's to come and that it's like, you know, oh yeah, this is where it begins kind of a, a deal. It does, you know, effectively do that. So it practically it works, but it's not like my favorite piece of Mira artwork. I mean, in a very simplistic way, it is emblematic of Millennium Falcon. Because it's Griffith's story and Gut's story. Yeah. And here they are on the page. It's those two guys. Uh, Often back to back. Yeah, back to back. (laughs) That's what it's communicating, but it's not much. I feel like what it's here is, is it's here to show Griffith's shiny new armor. It looks cool. (laughs) And it's... uh, You can tell where the gold parts are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. That's great. But I don't like it. So for for historical purposes, I wanted to point out that it scored a 24th place in my favorite volume poll on our forum a couple of years back. Uh, but not too low. Not too low. Not, not the lowest of the bunch. I, was I actually thought it would. Who cares? Who cares? I care. Did volume, do, <laughs> did volume the 18 do the best? Uh, 28. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 28's everyone's favorite. 18's not even in the top 10. I like I like 18. But yeah, I'm like too. 18 was like the coolest one back. I'm showing my age, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> that one back in the day, that was like the coolest cover. Yep. I do like I do like 19 too, but not many people do, I feel. It's a good one. Yeah, we you know the moon and yeah, it's a backdrop. I, I like that one. I think it's a grower. Like it seems kind of uh it seems simple at first, but it's actually really cool and, you know, nicely put together. Now we're just doing I don't know, he's got that kind of old style, you know, action series yeah. from like beginning of the century or something i don't I like know, that I just it's like all it. red that it's like very uh, uniform yeah i like that he put some thought into the composition of it unlike this one <laughs> i knew it was gonna come back <laughs> to fashion you know i mean let's be you're forcing as to really defend this cover <laughs> not really i was just, actually i was gonna say the covers have never been uh the series you know big strength you know mm-hmm. i mean i i feel like when you like relative to whole good yeah. Uh, the series is, you know, like as a series on average, everything's great. You know, the pages, I mean, most of the artwork is, is great, you know, and, and the covers, you know, a lot of them are just, eh, you know, they're fine, but not that amazing. So they're kind of arbitrary by comparison. Like, why is this the cover? <laughs> you know, half well, the time. I feel like they must be afterthoughts. They don't seem like an intentional decision. Often they don't seem like an intentional decision was made for this being the cover. What's weird about it and incongruent with the whole idea is that these are paintings. Like they're, you can, you can, it's clear he sweats the details in executing these. And then they just get slapped on whether it makes sense or not, whether it's impactful for or not. So I feel like, you know, I, I bet you, I think we've talked about this before. Huck Sincher probably has access to a bunch of paintings and they're like, this one. We're going to use this one. That's exactly what I, what I was going to say. Is I feel like, honestly, I feel like he does like five and uh, or you know four or whatever, three. And, and he knows the editor is like, yeah, we'll pick this one for the cover because it's got to have guts on it. Mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, most of these covers, you feel like the, like the direction for it is, eh, it's going to have guts on it because... You know, people like guts, and if it's something else, they won't be able to. And that's why we get, I mean, that one's, you know, I mean, to me, it's, yeah, sure, it's not great, but it's fine. But you get something like 36, for example, 
or, you know, 38. And they're not like, you know, they're not, honestly, you know, they're not great. And, uh, and they could have been, you know, better I, I just, I don't know, to me, like you said, it feels like it's just direction from this, you know, uh, publishing house who says you got to have guts and that's it. That's how I rationalize it because it doesn't make sense any other way to me. Yeah. Uh, particularly if – let's just go ahead and open it up and we have these – this is the first volume with posters and this is now a recurring theme. A theme well, you can open it up and see that – why didn't they make these yep. posters the cover? <laughs> I mean either one but the one with Griffith and Guts at least conveys what we're talking about, about Millennium Falcon thematically having both of them on the cover would make sense. But This uh, would be yeah. like a top cover if it was a cover. <laughs> And it's, it starts the tradition of the posters are better than the covers inside uh, for some reason. But yeah, it could just be that arbitrariness. And it's weird because it's like half the covers have nothing to do with the contents inside. Like you said, it's just guts holding the dragon slayer randomly. Whereas like yeah. volume 23's cover is like berserk volume 23, the movie, the cover. <laughs> like it's like showing you all the contents of what happens in volumes 23 with the, the band of the Falcon, the beast guts and Casca. It's, you know, it's all there for some, for some reason. Did I tell you guys that I actually have, um, like a reproduction of that painting, uh, no signed way. by Mira. Really? Yeah, I do. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Of, uh, volume 23. Yeah. It's I one of the I few. I remember seeing it on your wall. Now that I think about it. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty cool, uh, piece. Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, you're glad like, I've, got, uh, I've got a dozen of Moira's signatures. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad it's 23 and not 22 is what I was about to say. <laughs> so Millennium Falcon. So this is the start of the new arc. Uh, Conviction ended in volume 21. Millennium Falcon is huge and it is pivotal, of course, for the series for a number of reasons. Um, we, we always say Millennium Falcon, um, but of course, the full title of it is the Falcon of the Thousand Year Empire. And the first chapter of the arc is the Chronicle of the Holy Evil War, which, you know, alludes to the big battle between Griffith and Ganeshka. I always, that's how I always took it, anyway. Well, not in the beginning. I think yeah. there's also, uh, because, you know, um, like by the time the big battle actually comes, it's already, you know, uh, moved on to the Falconia uh, chapter. So I think there's also... Um, an aspect oh, yeah. of you know it's a it's a like Griffith appears to be holy, but he's using you know uh, demons, I mean monsters for his uh, for his actual core of his army. So I think there's also that duality at play here, and that might be part of what the uh, you know chapter is about. You know the, the demon soldiers basically. Yeah. I think and, uh, uh, it's basically the emphasis. I mean, Ganeshka is part of it, but it's the overall Griffith coming in, sort of taking o- taking over Midland, basically. Whether it's liberating it or you know co- reconquering it for himself. Yeah, there's a dual aspect to it. And uh, just to um, spend a, a minute on the uh, arc title, I, I think it's it's worth noting that so Millennium Falcon arc, it's obviously a pun uh, about Star Wars, you know, which Mira is a fan of. So about the Han Solo's ship. And uh, yeah, it's also interesting uh, when you actually look into what it means, you know, that Southern Year Empire, uh, well, it's, it's a reference to what's to come, you know, the foundation of that huge empire by uh, the Falcon Griffiths, which is something that comes much later in the series, you know, over 20 volumes later. But I, I find it interesting that at that time in volume 22, which is, like you said earlier, a pivotal moment, where he got that information, you know, it's already like... 
it's not you know big, but it's, it's put there. You know, there's a you know the Falcon, and there's a Millennium, uh, you know, thousand year empire. You know, that's that's to come. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, and the thousand year part also hints back to Guys Eric's time as well. Indeed, so also built into it, which is also neat, of course. Yep. Needless to say, this arc is all about setting the stage for the return of Griffith uh, and w- what that means for the world. So this is all about establishing a scenario for him to rise up and take power, you know, both among the humans and, you know, him gaining power via his apostle army that gathers around him in this volume. And for Guts, Millennium Falcon is really about, you know, finding a new balance uh, now that Casca is with him and what that means for him traveling forward, trying to find a safe place for her, but also expanding his party into, with, with, you know, to sharing the road with new companions is also a big shift for him throughout this entire volume or arc, I should say. Yeah, and um, I mean, when you think back to 21, uh, the ending of 21, volume 21 is pretty definitive. You know, you got that, you know, big, you know, tower comes crumbling down, uh, Femto is incarnated into a new Griffith and flies off. And, you know, it ends with uh, Skull Knight commenting on that, you know, word that something's, you know, torn and emerging. And, you know, it's a very, it's like a page is turning, you know, something has ended. And with uh, volume 22, something is starting. And in many ways, uh, you know, this volume is almost like a new beginning for the series, which Muir actually commented on, you know, back then. So it's a, it's a very, very uh, powerful moment in the series, I think. Yeah, in this volume in particular, it's, it really is like fireworks. Like there's two standout you know, best of moments of the series, at least to me. And that is Guts and Zod fighting in the Hill of Swords and the Apostles gathering at Shet. Those are two, like, super memorable moments. And they happen, they're both in this volume. Yeah. So, like, it's a standout the, volume. Basically, all the Apostles kneeling in front of Griffith is, like, iconic. Just that, those two pages alone. Yeah. And also I- introducing all those characters yeah. pretty much all at once. It's like a huge fireworks moment for the series. Um. But before we get into it proper, I, I did want to point out this one little line that Miura says about Millennium Falcon in the guidebook interview, which I'm just going to read verbatim from Dark Horse's edition of it. Uh, the, the interviewer says, in this chapter, Griffith is incarnated and becomes active not as Femto, but as the Hawk of Light. Uh, so Miura's response is, uh, back during the original Dark Guts days, I intended to make Femto his enemy thereafter. But by the time I finished the Golden Age arc, Griffith's character stood out too much, and I wanted him to fight Guts in that form. In terms of the narrative, him being in the same form as before, but powered up, would make the course of their confrontation easier to convey. And in terms of setting, if he were Femto, he'd be acting in a different dimension. So he's just explaining, of course, the decision he made to make Griffith uh, you know, have a physical form again instead of being a godlike being. And the story of Millennium Falcon kind of wraps around that idea of yeah. he's a human now, he needs an army, he needs to convince the people to support him, all that kind of thing. So that's kind of the structure of MF. I also just like the the simplicity of saying, like, you know, like with everything with Golden Age, it all became so integral to the series and identified with it that it was like, well, this would just be more dramatic if he looked like the same guy that he was when they were friends. Yep, totally. When you think back to uh, Femto, you know, uh, Gus confronts him at the end of the uh, Black Swordsman arc. And at some point... Uh, you know, if 20 volumes later, they're just back at the same point and they are just being, you know, uh, fighting in another dimension, the two of them, uh, you know, the question is what, what was that all about? You know, what was the point? So yeah. I feel some things that's unsaid, uh, here is that, you know, the story had grown so big by the time with the Golden Age arc, you know, that, that flashback 
taking so much more space than Murad expected that he had to, you know, uh, make the story bigger, you know, as a result. And that, you know, kept going, going. And that's why it ended up being like that, I think, you know, beyond just the fact that having uh, Griffiths and, and, and Guts fight as their, you know, human selves is a cool, a cool image. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'll go ahead and get started with the first episode titled uh, Rent World in the Dark, Ho- Dark Horse Edition, but uh, Ruptured World is what we ended up calling it. And Azil, when I was coming up, when you were coming up with that name, you know, you said there's a reason you chose that word. And, and I remember that being an interesting explanation. I'm wondering if you can summon that now. Do you remember? Because I vaguely remember it and it was cool. I do remember uh, some of it. Basically, of course, you know, in Japanese, it has uh, multiple uh, connotations and meanings, you know, beyond just uh, what we see in English. And one of these, it can it, it can also mean something like a, a flower that's starting to blossom. You know, when the blossom mm. just starts opening up, and that's something that this word evokes in Japanese. It, it does have the, you know, meaning of something uh, which ruptures, which breaks open. And then, you know, the idea is that, of course, uh, some of the astral world is leaking into the corporate world. But it's not just, uh, you know, rent as the idea of, like, you cleave through something, it's broken like that. But it's more poetic in Japanese, and it's uh, more subtle. It's not just... Uh, it's, yeah, exactly. It's not just like you pierce through something, you know. Yeah, it's like something new is blossoming. I, I like the idea of that. As it's well. like a it's a transformation. Yeah, it's a, it's an opening, but like I said, it can you know it can have multiple meanings, and including that of a flower opening up. So it's not like it's just not necessarily something super violent like rent, uh, you know, conveys. So yeah, that's why I think ruptured word is a, a much better translation for for that part. Rent world also makes it sound like, you know, apartments.com or something. It's just making me think of the wrong, you know, rent. I was thinking like Hollywood video replacement, like not yeah. even a blockbuster replacement, <laughs> but like the Hollywood video replacement. Rent has too many of the wrong double meanings in English. <laughs> you know, I think like rent as in, you know, broken or, you know, is like yeah. third or fourth on our definition. Yeah. So it's like, huh? <laughs> is that- that is world. true. It's true that beyond like the actual just pure meaning of the word, it's not it's not a common usage for it. So it's a strange choice. The rent yeah. the rent world sounds like some social commentary on like people not owning their own homes. You oh know yeah, I mean? <laughs> credits. You know, credit cards. They're ruining society. <laughs> so this, uh, I love how this opens with a very storybook looking haunted wild forest. You know, saying that children were the first to notice the change. You know, presumably it means the changes that are happening in the world. So we're tracking a group of kids running through the forest. Uh, one of them is named Nico, but not the same Nico that we know from the Dreamcast game. Uh, the boys comment on how the forest seems to be scarier uh, than it was before, like it's a forest out of their dreams. And Nico says that he saw fairies here. That's why they're here. He's running into the forest and his older group of friends is chasing him through. So they're commenting on how the forest seems wilder and bigger and scarier than before. And they hear laughter surrounding them and which suddenly stops. And at that moment they look up and they see Zod flying overhead, you know, Griffiths in his hand. Um, And then we have this shot of the, the two page shot. I really love of the volume with uh, flying over the forest. The, all the, the broken branches of trees as well. I love the, the silhouette of them, the black and the white. Yeah, my God, this volume looks good. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, one of the parts that's really striking here is how detailed the forest is. And yeah, it's crazy. How, you know, I mean, there's a mood in the forest 
I don't know if I'm the only one who obsesses over this stuff, but I think Mira really conveys very well, you know, maybe because the kids are the protagonists here, uh, how the mood of the forest is strange and otherworldly, you know, not... It's that two-page spread of, yeah. of the forest itself before you see the Zod one where it's just like, whoa, it looks like, you know, one... It looks almost like a clip hoth or something. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It looks like a place to get lost in like it looks intentional well, to and the roots are all connected it looks it looks like an alien forest basically yeah. it's like oh yeah and it's also so big i mean you see the kids in the middle they look tiny you know it's like they're yeah lost in a giant thing you know not not just a standard forest you know like yeah yeah and they, they, point, they look up and point and they see zod and it kind of culminates with that moment with zod that the kids kind of scatter but as things continue, the narrator picks up and says that uh, in the silent places, the darkness, uh, things that were dark, stopped being silent. Uh, and it says it was like a tale passed down from elders to children, as if it was there all along. Something in the silence was alive. And we see what could be a goblin, perhaps. Uh, it's the first instance I can recall of magical creatures that aren't fairies or elves in the series. Um, and it's of course the tip of the iceberg for what things are, where things are headed in the series. Yeah. Um, but we don't know the implications of that episode title yet, but this is basically, you know, explaining that to us, you know, the world has changed and this is what's manifesting as a result of that change. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, obviously the fact that appears overhead uh, connects that sequence to what happens after, you know, the other half of the episode. And, uh, what's interesting, it's interesting you mentioned the goblin because I feel like, People don't dwell on that part as much. The actual, you know, changes occurring in the world, and uh, and I feel like there's so much information there. You know, the idea that the kids are the first ones to notice it. That uh, there's also a part that says they remember it. One of them remembers it being kind of like that when he was younger. And you know, it's a, again something we get back later on in uh, volume 25 uh, when you know they talk about the fact children's dreams. You know, are also connected to the uh, astral world. So there are all that aspects and these clues to the nature of the astral world and how humans, you know, uh, get less attuned to it as they grow up. And then of course that goblin, as you said, that foreshadows uh, later developments like in volume 24 and afterwards. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's really powerful in underlining that message as the world is changing, like you said, in, in a deep way. It's also interesting to contrast this now with uh, the change in Fantasia when it comes about, how it's like, how this is just sort of, you know, something you might not even notice if you weren't paying attention, like the kids, you know, and that's also another cool little foreboding trick that like, not everyone can sense it at first. You know, it's children that are noticing it because they're more in tune. It's almost like, you know, animals impend, you know, sensing impending natural disasters, things like that. It just gives it this sort of more foreboding, ominous feel. And it's like this underground change taking place, sort of uh, nicely uh, represented by this little face popping out from under. Something's coming <laughs> out from under those that the gnarly, scary roots of the tree. And you actually do see the little eyes and a face poking out there. And it's like, and how that's going to actually become like dragons, you know, flying around at some point. Yeah, I think it's interesting that he chose to connect not just this esoteric change with their perception of the forest, but also that it actually is a creature there too, right? He's doing two things, that the world is becoming wilder and it's being inhabited by magical creatures. So there's lots of things happening there. And they're um, literally coming out of the shadow. 
I also don't think it's a mistake that on that previous page, the two-page spread of the overhead of the forest, we see this like the remnant of some tower with trees growing through it and birds kind of, you know, perching on top of it. I don't think that's by mistake. I, I really do think it's alluding to the world that's coming, that basically the wildness overgrows humanity. I, I like the idea. The branches of that. breaking through the rooftop, you mm-hmm. know, there. And I think also that's, just a beautiful shot of uh, Zod, too, and like the, the way the weather is conveyed and everything. Yep. And, and there's also just the fact the forest seems to go on forever, you know, in that mm-hmm. shot. It's just, it's like, again, I mean, what are these kids doing in the middle of this? <laughs> are they even, do they live after this? Because uh, <laughs> it's, it's not clear they're still alive, you know. Do the goblins just eat them up? It's, uh, so yeah, it, it's a very interesting thing. And again, I mean, what's great is that this sets up the fact Zod is carrying someone to some place, you know, which we move on afterwards. So that's that's double double great, you know. Yep, for sure. Moving on, we have uh, the passing of Godo. We see his grave here. His tools are etched on the gravestone. It is a little jarring to me that the Holy Sees icon is on there, but I guess I get it. It's it's this world's version of the cross, and maybe he had a normal burial, and that just comes with the territory. Um, I just thought it was a little strange. So kind of sacrilegious that he's on there, but I get it. Whatever. Um, they have this reunion scene with Erica and Guts and Casca, which is nice because it kind of closes the loop on, you know, where we started with this whole process. You know, when Guts set out to find Casca and now he's back and that journey's over, right? That's the end of it. Um, <laughs> I, I do think it's fitting that uh, Erica's the first one, you know, that Guts appears to, just like, you know, he did in volume 17. And that only this time the vibe is uh, completely different thanks to Casca, you know. Uh, it was pretty, you know, significant the way her presence changes Guts' demeanor and the, the vibe around him. I don't know. Yeah, it's a bright scene. I mean, you can see, yeah. you can see it's just a time of day thing. But you'll recall, like, as Azil, as Azil was talking about, the volume 17 when he's like a comes monster out of the trees. The, he's like the monster coming out of the woods in that one. Yeah. yeah. I think that contrast is meant to be subtle. I don't think we're meant to be flipping back to volume 17. But there's a difference here, for sure, in Gut's character as a result of Casca and Puck. I also, I mean, it's just a detail. But I also like the way the scene is introduced with uh, Erica shown doing like what she does every day, greeting her late dad and cleaning up his grave. I think that's a, a nice little way that Mira has to bring life into the, the scene versus just guts arriving, you know, in the middle of... You're right. He, he, he kind of interrupts what she's doing as a daily thing. That's, I think that's nice as well. Um, guts expresses regret at not being here for Godot's death, but, you know, Erica says he wanted it that way. And Erica asks, you know, what's next? We're all here together. And, and she proposes that we could all live together here. And Guts, you know, he thinks back. He has a flash of his memory of, you know, Albion and seeing Griffith. I like that little, just a little blip we get, a little slice of that little memory. And the readers know what yeah. that means. And Guts, you know, knows <clears throat> that's still stirring inside him, that he can't just shelve that necessarily forever. So, you know, for the time, he just says, sure, <laughs> basically. Um and so they keep walking, but Puck knows that, you know, Guts can't just walk away from it. So Puck's kind of teasing Guts about, are you sure, you know, you don't want to lie to this kid. Did you really mean that or not? Uh, and then we get some ruminations of Guts kind of framing things up, saying that he was just fighting to get Casca back and Griffith came back. So we get some introspection saying that this Griffith that he sees was just like the one that he remembered. 
as if he had been stolen from the past and he forgot his urge to kill, which is creating some strife for Guts inside. He can't swallow his vengeance. This next two panels I thought were very, oh, this one panel was really cool with him slicing through this sea of apostles because it's emblematic of his whole time as the black swordsman. And we get this little paragraph, but he's talking about that missing chunk of his life. That's not told in the manga necessarily that it was an aimless journey, relying on strange rumors and the sensations of the brand. So obviously his main quest was hunting Femto, trying to find any location for where he could be. We know how that ended up, but in the process, he's slaying all these apostles. It's really just a, a way to get to Femto in some way. I just like that Mira kind of caps that off here. It's an older chapter of his life, talking about things that he never really talked about much. Yeah, and uh, I think it's interesting that Gus recognizes that it was basically pointless and aimless. You know, he, yeah, he was killing apostles and slicing through you know specters at night, but that like he has nothing to show for it. And uh, and I like the fact that now that Femto is incarnated into the world, you know, that changes things up because he's reachable. He can get to him. Yeah. And of course, I mean, I'll say more after you finish, you know, uh, the pages, but I think it's very interesting, you know, that, to frame it that way at that moment, just before, you know, Erica talks about who's visiting. Yeah, it's kind of revisiting where he was before they decide where he's going. And. Mm-hmm. I, I just really like the way that ended. I don't know. This line always stuck with me through all these years that, you know, Griffith's, you know, he's now in the, in the same world as me on the same ground where I walk where my sword can reach him. I always thought that was really cool. Yeah. Um, what's interesting about this, all of, all of this, you know, internal turmoil, you know, Puck detects, we have this little panel of Puck looking worriedly at, at, at guts. And I, I just really like this because very authoritatively too, just sort of <laughs> analyzing him. Yeah. I mean, we know how Puck's sensations work. You know, he gets images and, and visuals. He doesn't get, like, full explanations or anything. Um, but it, I like how it wordlessly conveys that, that you know, Puck is capable of tapping into these deep feelings and guts, which Guts is never going to share with anybody. You know, he knows him better than probably anybody at this point. Yeah. And, and while he doesn't say anything here, you know, I, I feel like Puck gets the dilemma inside Guts. And, you know, he's he understands Guts, which I thought was cool. Yeah. Uh, and right as things are settling down, you know, they think things are calming down. They've walked away from Albion. Uh, Erica just mentions in passing that, oh, yeah, somebody's uh, visiting here. It's uh, someone that Rickert knew when he was a soldier. You know, they're at the Hill of Swords right now. It is a little of an odd transition. Which, oh, I forgot. We have a guest. It's like, yeah, the most interesting man in the world is here. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she describes him as someone so pretty that it looks like he's uh, walked out of a, the page of a story of a fairy tale. And that's where the episode ends. I think, you know, what I find incredible about this specific episode is how dense it is and the, the pace at which things move, uh, which is, you know, again, thinking back to where Volume 21 ended and what, you know, this is starting. Uh, like you said, we see with, with Godo's death, the fact Gus wasn't there for it, uh, the future, uh, the fact Erika wants Gus to stay with them and with Casca and everything. But a hint that the Black Swordsman era is definitely over, that Gus is past that life. 
And then we are, you know, shown Gus's hesitation because he might even like settle down and, you know, give it up. But then, yeah, (laughs) exactly. And and then we're shown his hesitation, like, uh, you know, now that he's in this world, maybe, you know, I feel like I I could, you know, try to find him. And then, you know, we we actually see that Griffith is already there, you know. And so, I don't know, I just find it incredible how condensed that is. It's just, it's less than 10 pages, actually, all that stuff. Yeah, there's, and multiple stories in this episode episode and everything it covers just for the main story but yeah like these 10 pages as you point out it it covers a ton of ground this could have been this could have been four volumes before they met you know (laughs) like (laughs) pretty much so yeah moving on the next episode is uh titled uh, reunion on the hill of swords the setup for the big face-to-face is perfect with uh rickard mentioning how uh, those members of the Band of the Falcons that didn't make it uh, back and exposing that he still doesn't know what happened. You know, he's speaking with Griffiths. He's saying these things. We don't actually see Griffiths. uh, And we're shown Guts rushing towards them in between these uh, pages. Uh, And then we open on this beautiful two-page spread of Guts getting there out of breath, Starring, and then another two-page spread of Griffiths in full armor among the graveyard of swords. You know, so that I find that very, very powerful. These two-page spreads, you know, back to back. Yeah, the 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 balls on Miura to feature this face to face after just having shown you know Griffith coming back. You know, to go straight into it to not tease it any anymore. I thought that was very powerful uh, for him to just do that. It's a real ballsy move. Yeah. I mean, I know, so for the little story, I'm going to say it because you won't, but Walter at the time thought it it would never happen that fast. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wasn't even there back then. You're the one who told me. And so, and yeah, it happened right after, you know, even though nobody saw it coming. And I I agree with you that it's it's very ballsy. It's uh, I think in a way it's also typical of Mura in that it's towards uh, expectations, you know. Uh, Sometimes he'll take his time for something, but usually he addresses things very quickly and so again you you get that start of the medium falcon that's very very strong you know we address everything then you know there's a confrontation with guts and griffiths it's you know direct so you know no languishing straight to it yeah it's it's also striking because they didn't take the opportunity when he was first incarnated that was technically you know if it was going to happen you know it could have happened then but then uh, for griffith to sort of you know it seems radical but he sort of puts it perfectly logically and it makes story sense that you know we've been waiting for these characters to to confront each other in one way or another for volumes at that point Uh, to me it would be the alternative is a weaker story if they don't have this face-to-face well, it sooner. And it doesn't you know? set up what's to come, whereas like yeah. Guts is putting the capper on kind of the old story and the old mission that he had, and this is sort of completely redefining it. So they need to have this meeting for that to happen. And exactly. you know, ironically, if it didn't happen, maybe Guts would have just stayed in the cave with Casca, you know, taking care of her for who knows indefinitely, you know, and this uh, this sets things in motion. It's kind of needless to say, this is a very consequential scene for a number of reasons. But, you know, this is the only real face-to-face, you know, the series main characters have had in the past 20 volumes. And I think it's, I think it's even been 20 years. Feels like 40 volumes, but yeah, yeah. obviously not uh, that much. To me, like, every speech bubble matters in terms of, like, what Griffith is saying, in terms of interpreting. And because 
we didn't know at the time and we should have known in retrospect, you know, who he was going to be. But like there was a lot of questions about like who what kind of uh, person is this going to be? Is he going to be more like Femto? Is he going to more, be more like the old human Griffith, you know? But those things quickly become apparent in the more that he talks. Um, he's kind of a new entity. Like, I mean, he's obviously, you know, especially been revealed now. You know, we know Femto is just in there. He's Femto. But that, you know, he kind of acts you know, he, he has a human presentation. You know, he's not yeah. lording over everybody in a super menacing way. He's acting more like <laughs> Griffith. <laughs> and it's funny, while we get to it, but Gus actually comments on, you know, the voice, for example, which, you know, Femto, because he's a demon of the Lord, his voice is changed. And uh, whereas his human form, Griffith, you know, re- retains the same one. So anyway. Good cop, bad cop, <laughs> you know, rolled into one here. Yeah, so, yeah, moving on. So Gus screams and, and sprints towards Griffiths, but he's stopped by Rickert, who doesn't understand what's going on, you know. So Gus reluctantly uh, tells him it's not the Griffiths used to know, and that's punctuated by the, the, a shot of the brand profusely bleeding, which underlines the fact uh, that, you know, next to that image of Femto and the Black Sun, that this is indeed definitely Femto uh, wearing a, a meat costume. You know, and as uh, Guts and Griffiths argue, then, you know, we, we get to see, uh, to hear Griffiths talk. And I like how that is portrayed uh, because it's uh, an arresting event, you know, it, something that almost freezes the action because it's the first time we hear his thoughts in a, in a long, long time. So, yeah, of course, this is a moment to scene for these characters because uh, while Guts is embroiled in his rage, uh, which has been haunting him every day and every night, Griffiths is talking like someone reflecting on the past. Yeah, you know? like an old friend, too. He's almost, you know, he's being, like, mocking, but it's like he's saying it with, like, nostalgia, yeah, it's just this casual, disarming way that he says that guts never changes, and and it also in that line it, it communicates that this is the same Griffith that we knew that he's reflecting on their their first battle, you know, on the on the yeah. whenever they first battle on the hill way back and, in the golden age. And so. it's it's intimate too. This is how an old friend would you know who knows you would be able to talk to you. It's not you know some far off enemy, and it's yeah, it shakes guts. Yeah. So he does, yeah, he tells him that he never changes, that he's like uh, when in the first met, and, and Guts can't bear to be reminded of the man he once admired and saw as a friend, you know. He's revolted to hear his old voice, to see his old face, while knowing what he did and what he really is. And meanwhile, uh, Griffiths exposes why he came about as matter-of-factly as possible, you know. Uh, I wanted to see you once more to see if Having again a body of flesh, I would feel something, you know, while standing in your presence. And he also explains that he came to this place because it was too chaotic at the tower. And then, you know, adds that isn't it fitting they would be reunited again in this specific spot in the graveyard dedicating to the band of the Falcon. It's fucked up is what it is. That yeah, well, here. this is where his sort of flowery language goes, you know, it goes a yeah. little too far. And it's, I mean, I, I also love just the to see you line and how that also throws guts. Of course, in a, in a way, you know, he's, uh, he's still femto and he still likes to, you know, press his finger in the wound, twist it a little bit to see, you know, gut squirm. So one thing I just wanted to point out about these, uh, these pages is I like how dynamic the paneling is. Uh, there's a lot of clever shots opposing the two of them as the talk goes on. And, you know, Mura uses uncommon viewing angles too to advise to, to 
what essentially otherwise them standing in place. So I think yeah. that makes for a great sequence, you know? That's true. You see Griffith at all these crazy angles, most prominently, I think, after, you know, Guts yells at him for invoking the name of the band of the Falcon. And, you know, you see this odd shot of Griffith where he kind of truly looks evil for the first time there. But it's also kind of a little, like, you see the conflict naturally where it's like, you know, I think he's probably... You know, he can say that name if he wants. <laughs> you know, it's probably yeah. his feeling. <laughs> exactly. And so, finally, as Griffith says that he's free, that he doesn't feel anything, we get that shot of Gus where it feels like those words hit him directly in the page. You know, you get that, you know, rushing thing. So, he punches Griffith, uh, Rickert out of the way and sprints, uh, uh, sprints at uh, Griffith again. And we see another shot of the brand leaking abundantly. As, you know, Guts is accusing him uh, of not caring about, you know, uh, the people he sacrificed, all of that. And I like that he almost seems sad in that, you know, that bottom panel, you know, his eyes. He looks almost, you know, I don't know. Like- it's becoming, uh, he, he looks like hysteric with emotion, yeah. I mean, and rightfully so. Yeah. It's a little bit of betrayal as well, not just anger, but also that feeling of betrayal. It's all coming out. I could be wrong here, but to me, I think Guts kind of misinterprets what Griffith is saying. Maybe he doesn't understand what Griffith is saying. Like, he doesn't know what's at stake, I don't think. Because when Griffith said he wanted to know if his heart still shakes here, he was talking about what he perceives is like an actual ailment of his pursuit of his dream. Guts thought he meant remorse. Uh, but for Griffith at this well, point... Well, I mean, I think it's the both meanings kind of apply. There's also Griffiths is uh, specifically talking about guts, like whether he feels something standing in front of guts. Exactly. While guts is thinking about Griffiths not having any remorse yeah. for sacrificing the others. Exactly what I'm saying, yeah. Because, you know, guts, he's what's really haunting him is the death of his, uh, the death of his uh, comrades. And of course, you know, the rape of Casca and everything. But uh, Griffiths is just, hey, you was the one I uh, kind of cared about. So I'm just, yeah. you know. Yeah. And he's actually, it's correct that he doesn't care at all for the others. It's like, yeah. that's not even on his radar. It's like, oh, these swords. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I think it's like because um, as a process of becoming a member of the God Hand, his heart is frozen. He sheds his final tear and his heart is frozen. That part's easy. But facing guts, you know, someone who for him created a vulnerability in him as a human through their friendship, maybe that's trickier for him. And he wanted to confirm it because of that, because it doesn't seem like he's worried about those swords in the ground. It's really, as you say, guts is his focus. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think the next page really perfectly showcases the duality of the two characters, better than the cover, let's say, yeah. uh, where you see <laughs> Griffith's face is almost perfectly still as he replies, I will not betray my dream. And and guts, you see his dark rage, Monster. you know, as as yeah, as he hears those words, it's beast light. Exactly. So uh, the the next two page spread is also a brilliant uh, transition because guts finally strikes, and uh, his attack gets blocked by Zod, who had stayed out of sight uh, until then. How? How did they do that? <laughs> he was hiding behind a sword. Okay. Yeah, he was. <laughs> Well, you know, the snow. Griffith is very distracting. Zod moves super fast. Oh, he was in the snow. Guys, he was in the snow. There he was you in the snow. It's what I just said. Sorry. Flying off. But, uh, well, also, it's it's cool for one thing that Guts, of course, wouldn't detect him because of Femto's presence. Oh, so yeah. That, masked. That's of course. actually a cool little cover. Yeah, he's, uh, his brand couldn't, couldn't fill him. So, uh, yeah, so it gets blocked by, by Zod, and, and Griffith does not even move an inch, <laughs> you know? 
He actually so, looks kind of annoyed, like he's peering out from behind Zod, like almost like a little yeah. bit like going sideways, like, eh. Yeah. You got a little, cut it a little close there, buddy. <laughs> so it's funny because there, there will be a duel, but it's not between the people, uh, you know, we could have expected at the time. So that's interesting, you know. Uh, we see a, a close up of Zod's face. And, uh, and the scar, you know, bears, which is, uh, I found was nice, you know, reminder of uh, his new allegiance and uh, his role as a Griffith's uh, chauffeur and uh, bodyguard. <laughs> so, and of course, he's also happy to see Gus again, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can, I can fight. He's, you know. And um, so as the episode ends, we're uh, taken to Godo's cabin where Casca uh, feels something in her brand, something familiar to her, something she's drawn to, and uh, Puck feels it as well. So that's quite foreshadowing. And um, I'll just end by... Uh, asking the listener to recall the end of volume 21 when Femto was incarnated at the time when Gus tries to rush to Griffiths he's stopped by Casca's cries and uh, when he turns she seems to yearn for Griffiths at the time which confuses him and so that's something which the next few episodes will address and, and is very important so it's, it's good to bear that in mind I think I like the reminder for the readers to go check their previous readings and everything. It's like See, previous ish, Ed. It's like refer to your volume twenty one <laughs> and uh, page. Okay, the next uh, episode gets right into it too. And I mean, this there was a lot of brouhaha about this when it came out. I mean, going oh, all yeah. the way back, like we were super excited. We were already debating because we knew Zod obviously brought him there. So it's like, are guts and Zod gonna fight? You know. Of course they are. No, they're not. You know, it's not the right time. You know what? You know, this is this was all really sort of radical at the time. Like it was pretty crazy. And so, of course, they're going to fight. And so the first page just, you know, sets it up with, you know, guts looking great, staring at him one eye over the sword, iconic looking Zod. You see their swords going back and forth. This is a real action packed episode. You've got commentary from uh, from Rickert, who doesn't know that it's Zod yet, because I don't think he saw him in his human form. Correct. Yeah, I actually love that. That the fact he doesn't know it's that yet. I saw. I, I thought you know it's a kind of little detail only miracles about. I think it's great. I don't know. <laughs> which which actually just confuses the reader that doesn't remember that. <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> yeah, <"Wait> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, why doesn't he know it's that? Oh yeah, I didn't see him when he was a person. But and you've just got Griffith as dispassionately as can be looking on. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And so Zod, you know, they've got a little time here as they're crossing swords, you know, to uh, to exchange words. And Zod, you know, uh, basically compliments him for you know defying his uh, his prediction that you know he wouldn't be able to to make it, and you know that he's happy to see him again and fight him. And then we've got these great you know, sort of action shots, which at the time were pretty novel for the series, too. Oh, there yeah. was some debate about, you know, whether this was good or bad at the time. It's good. It's real good. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> this is easily my favorite fight in the whole series. Yeah, like, I thought no, it was no crazy uh, when people were like, oh, I don't like uh, these action shots, you know, just because they're very dynamic. It's super well choreographed. Like, you can yeah. see every move and the fact that there's these, all these action lines and blurs, you get a, a, a sense for each movement. Like you, you feel each of the impacts. Too. You can g just go through the pages, forget the speech, you know, going on and just look at the, the fight and follow it. And you would just have a really cool, like action fight. You know, it's hard to do this well here. too, because you rarely see artists commit to this level of action on the page. Often you see a before and the after sequence and that, 
that middle chopped out panel is left yeah. to your imagination, but you're seeing it here. You will just get a series of their swords, you know, sort of crossing and them talking, whereas this shows you every movement in between with guts flipping back. You can just like showing a little interstitial of his eye and the motion lines around it shows you that he's flipping down and then you see the sword coming up at Zod's head. You see it going in his eye and you see his head ducking down with the awesome shot of like you see the his eyes trailing. And it's just like, yeah, wow. That's super cool. So, like, yeah, he's he's not doing this just for style either. Like, uh, to me, he's showing all this detail and the level of movement to, to really show you how good Guts has become over the years. Like, yeah. Yeah. we've seen him fight over the past several volumes, of course, throughout the Conviction arc. But, like, here's someone that can actually push Guts to his limits in a one-on-one well, battle. And That's someone different. that he, he, by his own admission, couldn't measure up to before. That he basically had to use a all-or-nothing trick to to get the best of and now he's just trading blows with him you know pretty much equally and we're and we're seeing zod you know go ahead now i was just gonna say i like that also that you know usually gus is shown as the wild guys or guys whose you know pure rage and strength will overwhelm his opponent and in this case it's kind of reversed with zod he's the finesse guy yeah zod has so much you know pure strength that gus is He's actually his swordsmanship is what makes a difference because he's just every blow from Zod makes him tremble. Yeah, so, yeah. In, he's using everything. He's putting up his uh, false arm to basically block a blow, get a swing in. You see Zod avoiding that one. I mean, if because this was sort of new at the time and we didn't see like this level of action or detail in the action before, it could it was I think it was hard for some people to follow. Like you know, especially like the shot of Zod. You see him taking one swing or getting his swing blocked going under Guts' sword and then you see him coming up to take another swing all in this all in one panel yeah like, you know so that's that's pretty high level stuff I, I mean to this day i think this is a most technical uh fight in the whole series you know the way it's depicted yeah and you know, it makes sense because both of them are really exceptional swordsmen. So, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, and I agree that it takes, you, you gotta pay attention to understand the action, but I feel like, you know, it's worth paying attention to because I never tire of reading this fight. It's just, it's just great, you know, seeing, like Gus, like you said, at some point, he, you know, hits, uh, Zod's, uh, wrist with his knee to deviate the sword. <laughs> you know, there's, there's all these real tricks. It's not just even, you know, swinging swords and the swords clashing. It's, it's very, very technical. I, I love that stuff. Yeah. And just it, uh, it ends with probably the most, like, sort of tech- technical depiction uh, in the whole thing, where after Zod brings his sword down, Guts actually uses his sword to pull him forward and out of position, to which surprises Zod. He spins around to swing at him, and Zod ducks back. You see the sword, you see the motion of the sword, you see how Zod, you know, knocks it back while he's backing up, and you see both their faces, and it ends with Guts actually thrusting and Zod uh, jumping backwards in retreat. I love that that pause in time whenever after the thrust yeah it's so cool like a like pause in the action I, di- I did want to oh go ahead i did want to point out whenever guts lifts zod's sword to throw him off he actually does two things he he, he actually Kicks uses his, his iron his knee yeah he uses his knee and also hits it with his iron arm to push it back more and then he does the as you said the rest of it yeah i mean there's a lot going on in every single yeah. shot and i and i love at the end where you see you know guts thrusting for what would be you know yeah the killing a, blow. yeah potential killing blow or at least his next uh answer here in this exchange and zod just has to retreat and get com- to completely disengage to gut surprise 
and and he he does a somersault, you know. He's yeah. not just stepping. That's pretty awesome. He, yeah, he, he's like he's got to get the hell out of there. <laughs> yeah, he's also you can that look on Zod's face. He's like, this is amazing. Yeah, he's he's fully engorged uh, as well. <laughs> so, wow. And uh, and it's just cool because I mean you can tell just the way Mira uses atmosphere here because you can just see guts. You can just see his breath blowing out, and the same with Zod too. Like they yeah. are they are both heavy breathing, and Zod's loving it. Rickert is a perfect, you know, commentator for the fight because he's, you know, literally saying, uh, this is amazing and I can't tell what's even happening. And, you know, what's cool about that, though, is that seeing these two guys go at it, it it's kind of cute that it's framed in a way that's sort of similar to when he saw Zod and Skull Knight battling uh, mm. back in volume 13 and 12. Yeah. And uh, so Zod uh, begins to, you know, give uh, got some compliments again, you know, say how, you know, incredible his swordsmanship is that he survived, you know, through all this carnage and guts is more concerned with, you know, like what the hell are you doing here? Why are you following, you know, Griffith Zod looks, you know, a little nonplussed, you know, and, uh, and, and guts basically tells him to, you know, move out of the way and, you know, leave them to their business. And, uh, Zod, you know, lets him know that's not going to happen that, you know, I like what he says to yeah. put the words yeah put the yeah your words lack words lack elegance force your way past basically like we're men of action yep yeah i like that he's just yeah you know when i go through for you know move me aside yeah <laughs> that's just pretty cool go, yeah and just the way he says it with that smile and he force your way past i mean yeah. he's relishing this where it's just like hey i'm glad you feel that way <laughs> yeah. what like, got, even if I didn't have a good reason, it doesn't fucking matter. We're gonna fight, you know. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's basically telling him what you're gonna do, boy. Make me, you know. <laughs> yeah. So they uh, reengage. We see uh, we see them going at each other. They're both swinging in. We see uh, guts uh, get the upper hand there for a moment. He actually strikes down Zod's blow, and Zod immediately, you know, gets behind him. When they're they're both shocked at the other, basically, at how good the other one is because they're they're going for it. You know, nobody's holding back here. Uh, Guts starts, uh, you know, somehow mid fight, <laughs> thinking about Zod's strength, and you know, sort of analyzing the attack. You can see, you know, his legs shaking with every blow. You can see that he can barely uh, do this, and he realizes that you know if he stays on the defensive, he's not going to be able to make it here. So he charges into Zod. Zod, you know, sees that like <laughs> the Dragon Slayer is right under his uh, arm and you know at his torso. But before uh, Guts can, you know, get a swing off, he's already jumping back. And we see them, you know, moving in this fashion. We see them trading blows, trading, you know, wounds. And Guts is, you know, thinking again about, you know, what a monster he is and how he could basically get killed at any moment here. But he also has the realization that he's at least Zod's equal, that he can, you know, he can fight him. He can stand toe to toe with him. And he sees, you know, Griffith standing there and, you know, what he wants is just right past Zod, who's, you know, an obstacle in his way, and he's going to get through him. And then we get more commentary from Rickard, basically, you know, again, saying how incredible this is, that he can barely follow the action, that Guts has become, you know, completely incredible from, you know, his battle experience, and that also he's full of rage, though. And he can also tell that it's uh, directed at Griffith, which, very intuitive of, of Rickard to be able to get all that. So in the middle of the fight, Another blow, you know, exchanged. This one actually cracks Zod's uh, Kushin sword. So his you know, face, yeah, <laughs> he look. He really looks like he's uh, <laughs> gonna take a crap there. And uh, but he responds immediately, grabs one of Rickard's swords to his chagrin, 
and starts uh, double, you know, two-handing, you know, going back at guts, you know, and just completely overwhelming him, swinging both swords. And you can see Zod, you know, he's letting out a battle cry while he does it too. It looks completely overwhelming. Guts recognizes too that like, yeah, he's he's pretty much giving me the finishing, you know, touch here, trying to make this be over. And uh, Rickard sees that, you know, Guts is done for. Zod has his sword tied up. He's got the other one coming directly thrusting towards his face. Guts somehow manages to see a sword in the snow, get it caught in the armor on his foot, swing it up with his foot, dodge Zod's blow and stab him, you know, through the gut with the sword. And, you know, we get a gr- another great shot of Zod's face, you know, uh, another, uh, another bad uh, bathroom visit face for Zod. And uh, Guts flies forward from the momentum and just slides away, you know, basically looks like at least 10 feet away, slides across. And Rickard again comments on how incredible this fight is and how close that Guts, you know, sort of, you know, st- you know walks the line of death, you know, it, you know, so comfortably. I'm kind of reminded of when Miura was talking about the Holyfield fight here. Like we have a ringside commentary from Rickard <laughs> out the outside of the ring and we got Holyfield going at it. <laughs> <laughs> What I like is uh, how guts, like how close he, he cuts it. Uh, at that last shot, he yeah he managed to feel the sword in the snow, grabs it up and you know stabs uh, Zod with it. As he falls, he himself falls down. So it's uh, he managed to get the upper hand, but he was really close to dying here. And, uh, he, he, and yeah. turned, he turned a sure loss into a win, you know? Like, it was, yeah. it was something where he should not have won at all, and he still managed to pull it out. Another thing I like is how he takes heart, or at least, uh, you know, uh, grits his teeth through the fight by sinking back to all the nights he spent hunting down uh, for Femto and yeah. the good hand, you know? And uh, it reminds me of when he was him. facing... Boscone and he sought back to his fights against Zod and that allowed him to, you know, uh, keep his fighting spirit up. So I thought that was a nice little parallel. Yeah. And so then we uh, get a little uh, switch in emphasis here. We see Griffith and we get a, you know, a little sound effect of a, a heartbeat. And, you know, he puts his hand over his heart. And, you know, we get some, I think this is our first inner monologue of Griffith in his uh, incarnated form. And, you know, he feels this, you know, this throbbing inside him, you know, of his blood, of his heart, you know, whatever the case may be. And he realizes that, you know, the feelings that he's feeling in this throbbing, you know, belongs to his vessel and belongs to, you know, basically Guts Guts and Casca's child. So the dun, 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 it ends on that note uh, with the throbbing. When he says my blood should have been frozen, that's actually a callback to volume 13 when he encountered the idea of evil. Mm-hmm. That's what the idea of evil says after he sheds his last tear. He said, uh, your heart is frozen as a result of all the suffering that you've endured you know, through the eclipse and through that massive sacrifice you endured. And now he's seeing that uh, something was rigged in the process of transformation. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's actually a very, very, uh, I mean, it's a huge event. That, that page, the fact as he sees Guts and that fight, he actually, why he said before he felt nothing, that he actually realizes, uh, he does feel something and it's not from him. It's from his vessel, uh, that he took over from the boy. That's a, a big deal. And, uh, you know, the next few episodes, you know, get into it, but it's something that has impacts to the end of the series. So 
it's huge for Griffith too because everything was clicking into place perfectly for him. You know, he came back, he confirmed that Gus didn't have any hold over him anymore, and then suddenly, click, uh-oh, there's a flaw in the plan. Exactly. And that's still with him today, as we know. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, he doesn't really address that either. Like, it, it's kind of strange. Like, he should have probably had Zod kill everybody, <laughs> you know, right from that Maybe point. Maybe he, I don't, mm, we'll, get, we'll get to that. Or he couldn't, you know, at that point, or why didn't he? I mean, that's the big you know, question. That's obviously what has... Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in a couple eps, for sure. Sure. I didn't get a chance to say this uh, in the course of the last episode, but Griffith, you had led off to that, saying that at the time, we were all very excited to see how this fight would happen between Guts and Zod. And I do recall that because I actually, no kidding, got a speeding ticket going from Atlanta with the you know young animal in my hand, rushing back to my apartment in <laughs> Athens, Georgia, to scan it for everybody to share it with SKNet at the time. So, yeah, I was literally racing to share it with everybody because it was so awesome. I just wanted everybody to see it as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, a little anecdote of the times. So, episode uh, 182, I believe it is, one unchanging, or unchanged, excuse me. Uh, Zod compliments Guts on having survived being branded and on his uh, sword, the Dragon Slayer. Uh, but he stops short of saying anything like their first encounter, you know, when Zod was raving about, this is the first time in 300 years, because I think, you know, Guts gets it at this point. He's a big deal to Zod. Instead, he's just hungry. You know, and this was a nice appetizer. Let's bring on the meal. And there's this so, great... Go ahead, Azil. There's something in, uh, funny in Japanese about what he says about the sword, is that Mura uses a furigana to make horse-slaying sword and a uh, demon slaying sword into the same uh, sound. Oh. So he's, he's you know, uh, comparing the, that cushion sword he got to the dragon slayer, saying the dragon slayer is better, and using a, you know, a way to make it sound similar. So it's, it's Like a hierarchy. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. I like that there's this tension here on this page that gets broken with the breaking of the sword and the transformation happening simultaneously. Yeah, he's getting serious, basically. And Guts has that, you know, squinting, angry, you know, yeah. it's, he knows it's really starting. Yeah, here's where it all begins. So this two-page spread here, I feel like I've seen a lot of colors of it over the years, but even beyond those, like, I feel like it's really iconic for Berserk. Yeah. It's a small human facing off against an overwhelming inhuman foe. I often see this one pulled whenever someone's just saying, like, here's an example of great artwork in Berserk. I see that literally all the time on YouTube on Google, everywhere. Like This is a really big two-page spread for the series, and it's really well done, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Rickert finally recognizes this is Zod, and he starts putting things together pretty quickly. You know, If that's Zod, then why is Griffith uh, allied with him? You know, This comes up a lot, which is interesting in the discussion here. You Gut's performance against Zod in this fight, you know, compared to what they were just doing, human-on-human-esque fight, right? It's not that Guts is bad here. He doesn't he doesn't have a bad performance. You know, he gets in some hits. It's not completely lopsided, but it's it's treacherous for him. You know, he takes the strike against he immediately strikes Zod. He gets but he gets batted away, right? There's this power differential in terms of Zod, Guts can get in some hits. He gets in this hit on uh, Yeah, he gets him Zod's. under the arm and like you totally. see blood spraying out. Like he nails him. Yeah. The thing is Guts can get in some hits. Zod can take the hits. But Guts can't take the same level of a hit from Zod because he's just a human. I know? think what this shows is just Zod is just so overwhelming. Yes. That yeah, he, you know, Guts is going at him almost, it's almost foolhardy. Like the first strike right into, you know, trying to match him blow for blow. 
and you just get immediately guts flies back like 20 feet you know you can't do it yeah so if only he had some better equipment this might be a different fight is, <laughs> i guess is all i'm all i'm saying you're saying he needs a bigger dragon slayer <laughs> oh oh wait so, a minute it never double-sided <laughs> like darth maul there's also the fact that he's like the you know top of the of the barrel and four apostles. He's he's the ultimate one. So it's uh yeah. I mean it makes sense that Guts, even though he's very strong, is not just not strong enough to do it in that yeah. capacity. It's once again it's perfectly showing that now he's Zod's equal, you know, sort of man to man, but he still you know falls short of him as uh you know fighting him as an apostle. So after Zod tosses Guts in the air with his horn, you know, becomes it's become less of a fight now. It's more like a, a Dark Souls rolling rolling boss fight, you know. Guts has got this fat roll as he dodges away from uh, Zod going through the mountain here. And we realize after that that it's actually Goto's mine, and we see a quick interior shot at this being demolished by Zod's in you know, the silhouette there. Yeah, and I feel like Guts, you know, kind of falls down a slope in two. He's, uh, you know, he's thrown over Griffiths. He's thrown pretty far by Zod, actually. Yeah, he goes, uh, you can see he's like 20 feet in the air looking down on Griffith. I mean, he's really high up. Yeah, and Casca uh, finally catches up, you know, from the, was it two episodes ago or last episode uh, when Casca sets out for this? Oh, yeah, right before the fight started. That's right. Yeah. So she's here now. Uh, Erica's with her as well. And Casca is staring at you know, the figure on the hill. And we see the position of Griffith way on top of the hill of swords. And as, as you said, Guts is down at the bottom of that hill in a kind of a valley. Um, that becomes important later. So Casca is crying out to him. And Guts just has this look on his face. You know, he's transfixed with what's happening or kind of a perplexing look on his face. Kind of a repeat of what happened over in Albion. Uh, but then Zod emerges from the rubble, and as the boulders start falling, you know Guts realizes that Casca's in danger, but you can't—he can't save her. He can't reach her in time. You know, Zod smashes him away, bats him away like a fly, and Guts hits some rocks. Yeah, he's actually pretty close to her, and then you just see—it's a really cool, mysterious panel. You just see this black stuff up in mm-hmm. above and below his eye, and then it's like, yeah, it's Zod's fingers because <laughs> he's right. gonna slap him right there. It's one of those rare times when Guts reaching out for Casca instead of going for the kill actually does him wrong. You know, normally that's usually the right move for Guts, but... He, he has no sort of choice here because yeah. it's like, the you know, and he recognizes it as soon as she's wandering on the battlefield, you know, this danger. And then you see firsthand, like, these boulders are falling on her. He knows, and some part of him knows he's going to get smashed here. You know, that he's let, he's completely letting his guard down, but because he has no other choice, and yeah, he gets nailed. As uh, the dust settles at the bottom of that page, we see it as a figure among the rocks in white. And uh, they turn the page and we get a full page of Griffith kind of enshrouding Casca in his, in his cape. And there's this look on Guts's face uh, of surprise, shock, fear, dismay, kind of hard to parse exactly. Then Casca finally reaches out. What's interesting about here is there's confusion in her eyes as she reaches for him. You know, her hand is trembling. She's reaching out, but she's also in pain. She's crying from the brand the reaction of the brand and her hands are shaking. And then there's this great charcoal shot of, of guts there uh, emphasizing the chaos and, and despair for him of that moment. You know, this is kind of like his greatest fear coming to life It's his greatest enemy and love of his life in his arms. And you see her, her pain and so close, you know, the, in this intimate position and you see her crying and it's just, it's very yeah. evocative of what happened before. And yep. then Griffith takes that step back. And you know, right as Zod's about to start, you know, round three here, Griffith breaks it up, says that's enough, and we're leaving. 
kind of a jarring ending to their fight. And then what I like about this is Zod gets one look at Guts like, come on, he's right here. <laughs> and then turns back around to obey well, his I master. like that you don't actually see his face and it's just, you know, it's almost like, I mean, I would describe it as like sort of letting something go and exhaling. You know, he just yep. turns around and he's going to leave and, you know, he's not going to dwell on it. <laughs> mm. yep. Guts asks where he's headed or where are you going? And Griffith just repeats his line, you know, I told you once before I will get my own kingdom. Uh, so Griffith sets the course for the next, you know, 15 or 20 volumes or so. He's going to get his kingdom and nothing has changed since the old days. Except that he's an evil god now. Yeah. That's different. That, that's, that's thematically confusing when he says nothing has changed. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Hmm. I wonder if it's not this line that was wrong in the Dark of Sensation. Mm, yeah, because it, it is a weird thing where it's like, well, this is that, that weird dynamic where it's like he's the old Griffith, but he, we know he's not the old Griffith, or at least he acts like the old Griffith, but he seems sincere. He has no reason to lie here, you know, to guts. And he's technically telling the truth. But, you know, it's interesting because we don't really get a lot of insight into his inner motivations. Like, we don't know what's inside Griffith or Femto's head most of the time. Pointing out there is a t- translation discrepancy. I don't know which is right, but our translation from many years ago says nothing will change that. You know, I will take hold of my own country. Nothing will change that. I remember that very uh, distinctly at the time, too, because it was – I mean, all these lines to me were very iconic in their original – you know, form from like the translations we had on the forum. And then the dark horse ones are a little off to me. Yep. They're usually off a little bit. Uh, as for, you know, we, we talked about it before uh, Griffith, you alluded to it, like why Griff calls off the fight uh, now. And I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a direct answer on any evidence, but to me, like, things escalated when Griffith involved himself in that moment. Well, Casco, it's also you know? the first, uh, it, we, I don't think we took it that way at the time, but it's the first implication of sort of his uh, immutability in the world, you know? Oh, yeah, of, you're right. Sorry. You know? We totally should have addressed. This is like the first manifestation of his god hand powers. Because like, we, yeah. those rocks right. come down on yes. the spot Casca was at, and Guts is looking at it like, ah, you know, you just watched her get <laughs> killed, basically. Well, it's really interesting to me that this is how, you know, Mira has chosen to manifest the power, because it's it's not like he's shooting fireballs, you know, it's yeah. this mysterious kind of just like superpower. At the time, I don't think we recognized it as such. We just thought, Correct. well, Griffith is super powerful. He can deflect those rocks, you know, whatever, you know. So, but later we get it gets a little more technical. We don't we don't know that it's like an arrow cannot strike him, you know, because of fate or something. I, I see. Yeah, I think there's more. You see, you know, it's uh, he can probably also you know shoot fireballs or Femto whatever. Power, you know, that's, that's what we could, but that's not how we're being, it's being shown here. As well, yeah, it's, like, it's yeah, it's not who is shown here. But yeah, it's true. You 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 went over it maybe a bit quickly, but I think uh, these these pages are very. You know, you see the rocks crash. You see guts and Erica calling for Casca. You see guts shocked. Then you see that figure of the cape among the rocks. Then that full shot of Griffith holding Casca, you know. And when you see these, uh, you know, very deliberately put, you know, step by step, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's more, uh, how to say, more remarkable than just, you know, uh, oh, well, you know, Griffith showed up and, and, and did that. It's something, it's like it shouldn't be possible. I guess that's my yes. point. I think that's, what, to me, that's what it is. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's this unimaginable power, but it's happening between the frame. So it's kind of mysterious in how it actually happens, but it's, it's an impossible feat that's not explained. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's made, uh, like Griffith said, uh, 
earlier, it's made more strange by the fact you see Casca reach, reach out to Griffiths, and yet she's feeling this uh, extreme pain from the brand. Um, anyway, moving on to, to the, the next episode called uh, Prologue to the War. Uh, so we started something very rare. It starts with uh, a repeat of the scene of, of the previous pages. So we see Griffiths parting wars uh, from another perspective. We see God, him and Gus from other angles. Uh, then he addresses Rickert, who's still very confused about what's going on. And, and he tells him that once he learns the truth, uh, he may come to hate him and that it, it would be fine, you know, so be it. Uh, but that if he still chases a dream, he would have no refu- reason to refuse him. And so <laughs> he, he flies off and Griffiths is still confused and you see Gus uh, shooting arrows at him from his crossbow. Uh, but Rickard tries to stop him again and anyway, he shot Smith and uh, like we were talking about, we only learn about it uh, later, but harming Griffiths isn't really an easy matter anymore. As he flies off on top of Zod, uh, Guts yells again to reiterate. Hey, someone in these shots was able to harm Griffith. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> someone was so, able to reach out and slap oh. that face. <laughs> I, had to, I had to fast forward several volumes to know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Guts, you know, he's reiterating or revolting this conversation that has been to him. That to Griffiths, nothing has changed even after all is done. You know, as stone-faced as he has been since the beginning, Griffiths replies that it, it is who it is and that Gus should know that better than anyone. What's not emphasized here is that he's yelling all of those words. <laughs> you of all people. <laughs> well, is Griffith just projecting with like God hand power? Like he can just turn up the volume of his voice, but not yeah. like, do the exertion of the indignity of yelling. <laughs> well, look around him. Is it got an amphitheater or an echo chamber with the mountains here? It he does just, look like, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, these, these uh, backdrops are actually very detailed. Good point. Causality and- covers all angles. <laughs> It just, the sounds just appear inside Guts' eardrum for Griffith. <laughs> so as uh, Guts stays uh, listless, uh, Rickers demands to uh, finally know the truth, uh, what happened. And uh, we then cut to Griffith as he flies off and we are shown uh, some things that will also turn out to be pretty rare, which is his internal thought uh, process. So he touches his chest like he did earlier and he feels the heartbeat. Uh, we see a shot of him holding Casca and the image of the demon child. Then his eyes as he looks pensive. So, yeah, uh, as we were hinting earlier, this is a very important moment because it establishes that the, the boy uh, wasn't erased from existence when his body was taken over during the incarnation process. He's still in there somewhere. The last time we saw the baby in this context, when Griffith was thinking about it, you know, his heart was beating for guts. And the baby's eyes were closed in that sequence. And then here with Casca, the baby's eyes are open. Now, that could just be a visual motif of him thinking about the child. Or it could be showing that the child actually was asleep throughout this whole process until it encountered its parents. And now it's awake. And now it's an active mm. force. That is a good point. And, um, Fucked up, Griffin. You could have just walked away. <laughs> you, you, yeah. and your master, you and your master plan and you go and you activate you know, your enemies yeah. and... <laughs> And, like, we didn't say it because, you know, here's the trouble with us running a forum for 20 years is that we've said the same thing for 20 years. And that is 
the fact that the boy's involvement with his parents, you know, he intervenes whenever his parents are in danger. And, you know, in both times here, that is a pattern of activity that is, you know, that happens here too. You know, Guts was in danger. The boy sensed it and tried to, it didn't intervene. It does intervene when Casca is placed in danger, though. Yeah, so well, yeah that's that was, maybe the eye is closed when Guts is in trouble because it's like, eh. And then when, mom, when mom's in trouble, it's like, eyes open. No, mommy. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe if Zara being about to deal the killing blow, he might have had a, a surprise. <laughs> so the, the child was like, eh, he's got this. He's got <laughs> So. Anyway, yeah, so the point is it's uh, the, 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 the it's, child. It's strange, though, because actually Griffith gets the opposite confirmation here in the end. You know, or that, he sh- that you know he's not free. Uh, of course. Yeah, totally. Things are not okay. <laughs> you know, and so it's weird that he leaves. Now, does he leave just because he's feeling, you know, he needs to think about this? He's kind of overwhelmed with it. You know, we, we haven't seen him address it really since I then. I think it's because everything was just put in jeopardy for him. Like, he can't push this envelope any further than he already yeah. has. Like, this is a... F- this is a messed up scenario. Does he scenario. feel himself like – is there like the potential of losing control? I think it's that, yes. Yeah, I actually agree with that uh, sentiment. I think this cast – this scene specifically casts Griffith's departure from the scene in another light. Uh, he had seen enough, sure, but what he had just witnessed was not that he felt nothing. It was that a boy can take control of his body in order to protect his mom. So while he might not feel anything, he shares a body with someone who does and who might, you know, who is able to take control. So, like, obviously, that's like a, a key revelation for the series and a, and a pivotal moment for it. Uh, and, that, and that grows, like, that. the importance of that, that moment grows, only grows as the series progresses. So um, and yeah, to to get back to the boy, obviously that's that's him that Casca sees, uh, you know, uh, and and I find that interesting because just like at the end of Volume Twenty One, we see uh, confusion from Guts because she doesn't recognize anyone from a previous life, but by a cruel twist of fate, the one who broke her, who utterly betrayed her, uh, now controls her son's body, and, and she yearns for him. She seems to have this affinity for him when really she's just sensing her child like she did before. Exactly. So she's uh, – Gus does not know and does not understand, and he might – he might soon in the real world, you know, in volume 41 or something. But yeah, at the time, it's very confusing for him. And the reader, you know, can, can tell, but uh, the characters cannot. So moving on, we cut back to Guts and Rickert. And the tale has finally been told. So I saw there was a pretty brilliant eclipse for, uh, ellipse sorry, from Mura here. We see the swords. We see Rickert's face. Uh, we see Guts' face just exhaling. We see Puck being silent on the sword. Rickert falls to his knees and is just, you know, shocked by what he's just learned. Uh, and he's and also, ne- he, he's seen enough to for it all to make sense, too. Because it's yeah. not like Guts is just telling him about these monsters for the first time. And it's like, what? <laughs> you know, not just Zod. You know, he's seen the outside of the eclipse and all the, you know, aftermath. Yeah, and he sees that uh, Griffith is still there, so he knows, he basically knows it's true. Like, yeah. Griffith is there, Zad fought with him, he has, he has no way he would deny it. The pieces so, all fit. Exactly. So on the next page, we see Puck uh, reflect on the story and on the fact he had basically pieced it together himself uh, from uh, Guts' mind over the years. Uh, and Puck also notices Casca, who is still yearning for her baby, uh, who's flown off. Well, and also that that Puck is piecing Casca into this puzzle now. 
You know, that he knew Gus side of the story, perhaps, but Casca being part of it. Now he's recognizing her as part of this as well. Yeah. So, uh, meanwhile, we see Erica, who is destroyed by the fact uh, Zod absolutely destroyed the cave. Uh, so, Gus and Casca don't have a safe place to stay in anymore. Their options are cut off. Uh, but her thoughts are interrupted when she hears Ricker speak up. He wants to go with Guts. He feels guilty for having lived in comfort and ignorance while Guts, uh, Guts uh, shouldered the burden of that knowledge alone. Uh, he says he wants, he's also a member of the band of the Falcon. So actually it's interesting because, uh, Dark Horse translates this as, I was a hawk. But that's not what the Japanese says. It says, uh, I was part of the Takano and this is an ellipsis. So it's more like I was part of the band of the Falcon, you know. Anyway, Guts refuses. He says uh, Rickett could never hate Griffiths. But they're interrupted by Erica, who's caught up with the conversation, and she's hurt by the fact they're all considering to leave. That, that line always kind of stumped me, because I, I feel like Gus needs to explain it a little more. I think I have a reason, but I wanted to hear what you guys did. Like, why couldn't Rickert ever really hate Griffith? He just got the lowdown. This is, uh, this is sort of a rare like moment of tenderness for guts especially following this rather harrowing emotional you know seesaw he's been on he like he's you know he's basically playing like the father figure the older brother you know putting his arm around him and telling him you know i understand you know you you know i understand you better than you here you know and i think i think he's taking his own feelings for griffith and basically extrapolating them to what it would be like for someone growing up with griffith is their you know as they're everything, you know, uh, Rickert was a child, you know, in the band of the Falcon, you know, he grew up with that group. He grew up with Griffith basically being, you know, kind of like a father to him. Uh, definitely, you know, the most important person in his life. And I think Guts is basically just seeing it like, yeah, you're, you're not, you know, just hearing this story and knowing this truth isn't going to make him, you know, have this sort of passionate hatred for Griffith where he's going to, where he's going to have the strength to go up against him either. Also, there's a fact he was not there. You know, he yeah. did well, not. That's what, yeah, that's what Griff is saying. Like, yeah, I, I, he he didn't experience it. Being told about the eclipse and living through the trauma of the eclipse are different things. And I think guts is really what he's doing. He's sparing Griffith or Rickard. God damn, a life of the life, the kind of the kind of life that guts has endured. You know, yeah. filled with rage and revenge. He's giving him an out. Tell this, yeah, you're gonna come with me on, you know, the death journey here. You yeah. know, he's obviously he'll 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 enlist his own child soldier later. But um, <laughs> but at this point, I think he's correct in saying like, yeah, you know, I don't think this isn't this isn't Rickard's fight. It, yeah. You know, yeah. Rickard might think so in this moment, but it's not, and he's not going to be able to, you know, go through that. And he's especially with the conviction that Guts has, and even Guts was shaking at the beginning of all this. You know, even he wasn't sure if he wanted to kill Griffith. At least, you know. In, in that moment, the moment of truth, he faltered. Yeah. And, you know, beyond what Guts uh, says here, I think there's also the fact, like you said, he does not want to burden Rickert with that because Rickert mm-hmm. has got a life to live. And uh, that's, that's like you said, that's a, a death journey. It's something that's very, there's a lot of chances not, you know, to come back from it. So be, beyond just what he says there, I think it's obvious he does not want Rickard to accompany him on, on that uh, quest. And then they've got, you know, that little moment where after Erica runs away crying and basically Guts gives him the look like, go be a man, <laughs> go take care of your business. Yeah, I actually like that. I think that's a great little scene, you know, with, with Puck. Uh, so she runs off and, and Puck tells Rickard to hurry up and go after her. And then you see Rickard turns to Guts, 
Gus just looks down at him saying nothing and then Rickert runs up after her. I, I love that sequence because it shows Rickert facing his priorities and his responsibilities. And Gus knows that too. Exactly. And I, and I think it's very thematically relevant to the next page because uh, then we see Puck ask uh, Guts what they're going to do. And Guts very simply reiterates his vow from volume 17, I won't leave her alone. So Casca is his priority here before revenge. And um, they discuss their options, and but things are complicated. You know, they can't stay in the mine. Puck guesses from what happened at the Tower of Conviction that two branded people can't stay together in a non-protected place for too long. So on a side note, uh, it's not clear to me how true that statement is, since what happened at the Tower uh, was uh, related to uh, once in a thousand year event, you know, the incarnation. <laughs> I thought that was a weird line too. Yeah. Member of the Good Hand. Playing with what they know here. Yeah, you know, it, it's first, it's convenient as an explanation to justify the journey, and it can also be explained by the fact, well, you know, Puck doesn't know everything, so it's just a, a guess. In any case, the point is it's not an option for them to stay here. I think just what, whatever they do, they're going to be in danger. I mean, you know, the, yeah. the ghosts are going to be drawn to them. They can't just stay. They could stay in one spot, but they're going to be in just as much danger trying to hold up somewhere as they are trying to get somewhere safer. So they might as well go. Yeah, exactly. I think the yeah the point is more that even if they try to hold up in some place with plenty of light and everything, it's not going to be a good idea. So, anyways, there are no elf sanctuaries around that Puck knows of, and we are treated to a little uh, a great little page of of Puck racking his brain and figuring <laughs> out that the he's the only expert here. <laughs> the the best place they could get to is his home, and and that marks the beginning of uh, another journey. Oh my God! And how? <laughs> yeah, here we are. We made it, guys. 2019? 20, 20s? No, they got there in 2016. It hasn't been that long. Mira is basically like, hey, you thought I was going to make you wait a long time for Guts and Griffith to see each other. Well, guess what? You haven't begun waiting yet. And <laughs> you don't know what you're waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, we pick up with them uh, leaving the grave site, which again is already getting a little layer of snow on top there. And Rickard's trying to convince them to stay. Guts is telling them, you know, it's just going to bring danger so that they better get going. And, uh, you know, he, he, he echoes uh, Godo's, you know, parting words and, you know, to take care of things that you can't replace, basically. And going back to what Az just said about how thematically this sort of fits, you know, Guts has something he has to take care of in Casca and Rickard needs to take care of, you know, the person close to him in Erica. He's always getting left behind. Rickard's always getting left behind. He got left behind when they went out to rescue Griffith. You know, he got left behind by, by Guts whenever he went out to become the Black Swordsman. Well, you know what? Getting left behind has kept him alive for, That's true. for a long time. S- stay on this mountain yeah. right here. Yeah. You know, he finally had his moment to, to shine eventually. We'll, we'll get there <laughs> where he's, he's going to drive the action himself. But yeah, so a gr- beautiful shot, too, of uh, them actually leaving uh, Rickard behind. Yeah. Single-page spread, uh, just uh, full-page, really nice. Godot's grave on the horizon as well. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Erica's yelling, take care, and Guts, you know, can't help but reflect, you know, on, uh, I think of it as the Hill of Swords, but it's, you know, their first meeting, you know, in the snow where they had their, their duel. And, you know, speaking of leaving people behind, he remembers, you know, it was him that left uh, Griffith behind. And this time he was the one that was deserted. 
But he's not going to be such a little bitch about it. <laughs> yeah, he's not, oh, I'm going to go sacrifice everyone. No, he spares Ricker. You know, <laughs> he's a good guy. <laughs> and, so, and once again, we get to have, you know, uh, what's Griffith going to do, kids? He's going to get his own country, <laughs> you know, his own kingdom. Nothing's going to stop it. And there's also that uh, they reiterate that uh, that sort of kill line, you know, for guts, that twist of the knife where he tells him, of all people, you should know that. You know, where it's like, I can't tell if that's, you know, if that's just Femto being a dick, if there's actually a little hurt there where you should know me, or if it's like, you're complicit, buddy. Like, you know, so whatever it is, it, you know, it's weighing on Gut's mind. You almost literally have the words, you know, coming down on his head in this shot. I think it's less complicit and more like, why are you trying to stop this if you've known who I am all along? Is it also that or it is also like... I've also read, like, there's a, you know, if you're being very uh, Griffith-centric in your reading, is it like, is that Griffith sort of hitting him back saying, like, don't you know me at all, you know? Like, not just in a why try to stop me, but in a, you know, I'm a little hurt. I, you know, I let you in, you know, and you, you don't seem to get it. I, I think it's also the very simple fact that Guts, he was there when Femto was born. He saw what Femto did at yeah. the time. Of all he's, people, he's, you should know what's going on. Yeah. He, I mean, he, he was really, that's why he's so enraged by all of it. So Griffith is like, you know, you know who I am. You know what I've done for my dream, but what, what I've sacrificed. So it also why? calls back the moment where Griffith asked him, do you think I'm a terrible person? Yeah. yeah, you know that was like this this single before you know everything went to shit. Th- that was sort of Griffith's the extent of his vulnerability, where you know he asked Guts, you know, oh, do you think I'm a bad person for all these things? And Guts Maybe was Guts like, should have should have told him the truth. Yeah, you're a fucking dick. You <laughs> yeah, gotta dude, change your attitude. Maybe, maybe you should. We should just chill out. Like it's pretty cool to be like the general. <laughs> Why don't you just? You just do made that? me leave a bag of gold on a corpse for no for just to be a, a dick. Yeah, like here's your money, shithead. You know, it's like this is like actually this is the darkness in your heart. Was that fucked up? It was kind of fucked up. It was. <laughs> Can't believe we did that. You know, we could have just got – that's a waste <laughs> too, by the way. But yeah, so I, I do think it's a great just sort of uh, summation of the relationship and sort of the stakes for everybody here. And, you know, then that transitions nicely into Guts looking, you know, very much scrutinizing more than I remembered Casca looking down at her. And she's, you know, just looking snow out of the air, oblivious. And he's, you know, sort of – trying to make sense of that moment where, you know, she's reaching out for him and they're practically, uh, somehow they're not touching, but they're literally inches away from each other. And, uh, he reiterates that he's not going to leave her behind again or lose her this time. And, you know, until we, we get to all- elf film and it gets complicated and in which, ah, this is too complicated. I'm going to bolt. <laughs> we'll see. But, uh, that remains to be seen, but yeah, so it ends nicely, nice little ending for them there, you know, Surrounded by, you know, the snow and winter and him basically hugging her close, you know, pulling her close to him. And then we, of course, transition, as we often do in Berserk, to war. So we get to see, you know, the arrows flying, (laughs) going right into some soldiers, cannons firing, you know, walls uh, being breached. And so look at those cannons, man. Look at those. I cool love cannons. those cannons. Meow. Tiger cannons. Monster teeth. Like, you know, well, yeah. not monster teeth. They're tigers. But Cat it's like. Tigers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, they, they look quite monstrous and very cool. It doesn't. You can't tell with the sound effects translation, but they do actually say meow, meow every time they, they fire. Meow, meow. Is it, is <laughs> it, they do not. <laughs> <laughs> they, they sound like tiger roars when they fire. Like, yeah. uh, so that's great. better. Well, that's uh, actually. 
well, it, it doesn't make sense to say so here, but Zod, uh, he's shown uh, roaring like a lion uh, at several points in the series, which is pretty cool. Definitely. And so we get an exterior shot incredibly detailed. of This is like Where's Waldo of Shet, uh, which is in Western Midland. And, you know, we see that it's basically being, uh, you know, occupied here. It's been overrun and has fallen. They're executing uh, people, beheading them, shooting them with bows and arrows. Mass graves are being dug and <laughs> bodies being burned alive. It's more convenient. It's, yeah. It's more convenient this way. So just <laughs> pouring oil on the living. <laughs> oh yeah, you know. I guess it's the yeah the easiest way to kill them. We see you know some you know peasants, uh, women in particular, being taken away. They've obviously had a rough time of it. Their clothes have been you know ripped off their chests, you know, and they're discussing you know uh, what's to happen to them. You know if they're going to be made slaves, you know if they're going to be sacrificed. You know all all of this stuff, and then they that you know sort of segues into rumors that you know the band of the Falcon, you know what happened to them if only they were here. Which also, which leads us to Sonia basically uh, saying that the Falcon of Light is coming, that she can hear it, that she can, you know, sense it, hear it on the wind, and that they're coming. I think it's really cool that we get this little allusion to Griffith. Like it's, it's really, it's a rare instance of we see the what's the word, the legacy that Griffith left behind as what, the what do the people of the band in the, the street Falcon. think about Griffith? Exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, yeah. What, is, what are the? It's the word on the street about this. You know, how long has it been? More than a year? Like three, three, I can't remember. It's been a couple, two, at least two or three years. Two or three years, yeah. It must have been at least three years. Yeah. yeah. Right. And they're still talking about him as if he's the savior figure. Of course, that's all been bolstered by these dreams they've been having, of course, you know. Yeah. Um, but still, you know, that's, that's, that piece is there. I also think it's pretty cool the way Sonia is introduced, where we get to see these, uh, like you said, the ta- town has fallen, uh, prisoners are being executed, uh, the, the women are being taken away to become what war crimes are being committed. Exactly, and then among these women, we transition to a girl that's not totally, uh, you know, right there. She she's a bit odd because she saw her parents being killed, or at least that's what the women say. Yeah, and and she's at the one that says she can hear the wind whispers that the Falcon of Light is coming. And that's the introduction to the character. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, at the time, I I don't know that we ever expected her to take a larger role because it's just like another change happening with the world. A a girl is privy to... You know the things happening behind the scenes in the world. That's that that in and of itself is not strange, but she actually becomes this kind of like very very special character in the series with these you know kind of inexplicable abilities. Weird weird girl saw her parents burned and is now talking a lot of <laughs> a lot of weird yeah. stuff about the Falcon coming to save them. So yeah, it does it leaves a lot to the imagination. Where is she crazy? And plus, she could just be a minor character here. Like you know, we don't know yet. She's just some girl saying that the Falcon's going to come save them. Yeah. I think we don't even really get any indication by the end of this that she's going to be more than that. But uh, Nope. Yeah. Volume 23, I think, is when they finally do that. But she's yeah. uh, There's also the shot of the flag burning, of Midland's flag yeah. burning. Yeah. That was cool as well. And so then, of course, we cut to the you know the leader here, the, the general that's been in charge of this. And, you know, he's kind of taking all of this uh, – <laughs> you know he's he's very nonchalant. You know he's kind. This guy makes me laugh. Every yeah, time I reread this, makes me laugh because he's he just can't be bothered to the details, the actual execution of all these people. It's just a real hassle. <laughs> yeah, he's bored. He's basically bored because it's taking too long. 
Yep. And he's bored, and he's also disappointed too. He's flabbergasted. <laughs> this is the translation from Dark Horse says, you know, that the the Bakaraka have completely failed to capture, you know, this one man. You know, he's excoriating them and their clan, and basically, you know, how terrible they are. Putting his boot on, you know, Salat's head, and pretty much just uh, telling them they're worthless. And you see Salat rise up, and you think. Uh, you know, he's not going to take it anymore. And, of course, you see the guy very cowardly yeah, <laughs> sort yeah. of, you know, backing up. Like, ah! And an arrow, of course, is flying right at him that Slack catches out of midair I, and, uh, and tells slow him. Down just, oh, sure. Just slow down just a little bit. The I, I think it is important that we get a character like this because the Kushin have been a threat since Volume 17. But we've never gotten anything from their perspective other than that they are a threat yeah. to Midland. And, and this guy... This guy is the face of the the Kushan invasion base at this point, you know. And he's busy, you know, putting him down as a slave. And it's also actually interesting because, I mean, is this I, – I think they mentioned it before when the invasion started. But he mentions the great emperor, you yes, know. Yes, he does uh, here, yeah. You know, and I think – I don't know if it's the first time, but it's definitely yeah. an early Ganeshka. I think it is the time, yeah. It is. And so, you know, this guy's basically like any Midland regal dick, <laughs> you know, noble asshole, yeah. you know, basically. Like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But, uh, you know, of course, Salat, you know, kind of guts-like, although I don't think guts would actually have saved the guy, <laughs> uh, rises up, shows that he's better, you know, it shows his worth. And then they go to work uh, killing this small contingent that has uh, survived somehow and was and actually had a great shot at the general. This is one of my favorite moments in the series, probably. Uh, we, you know, with Silat catching that crossbow bolt barehanded, and then you see the Tapasa who were not really shown in action before. And, you know, they, they move like super fast, and you get these super detailed shots of them with their, like, they've trained so much their bodies that they've become deformed with these huge calluses. And they're like, you know, this, this, uh, how to say, beheading a guy, you know, exploding the head of another. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's that shot of, uh, you know, a, a crossbow bolt being shot and you see one of them deviate it with his hand. And then that huge calluses and, and like, I mean, there's that impact shot of the guy. Well, he looks like he's sending him into like a, a portal. He's imploding. Yeah, <laughs> like you know, it's it's. I actually, I actually didn't know what's happening at first. Uh, yeah, but his his armor is standing still, and his yeah. body's going back. You see his yeah. body flying back, and the armor is just like crushing into itself. Yeah. And his body, but yeah. yeah, it looks like. It, but if you didn't know better, like on first blush, it just looks like Void yeah. is sucking, or Femto is crushing him into a ball. It looks like something like that. Like the force it's, that he's hitting him with is incredible. Incredible. This page here, I like the the crossbow bolt deflection. I just think that's a that's cool in anything. Anytime I see fist. that in a movie, and but, but, but yeah, the fist going three D through the frame is also very. But look in the to the right side of that fist frame, you see the little the, where the crossbow ends up. You yeah, you see it flying away, ding. You that's know, cool. off in the background. Very. I mean, it just adds also to the depth of this shot. You know, it's like you got the fist coming yeah. right at your face, and then in the background, oh, there's that crossbow bolt. So it's like you're really seeing like this incredible sort of. You know, if you were looking at it, you know, from your eyes, this horizontal view, like you're staring a thousand miles back seeing this crossbow bolt. So, yeah, very cool. There's not enough of these guys in the series because what's what's unique about them is they're like a third force in Berserk World, maybe even a fourth force. It's kind of unique because they aren't apostles. They aren't magic. They are – they've trained their bodies in a way that gives them supernatural-like powers. And I think that's really interesting and that yeah. it's not focused enough on the series. It'll be but. interesting to see if we're – I mean – 
speaking of Rickert, you know, heading off on his own trail, if we're going to get more details on what exactly goes goes into their bodies and what sort of rituals they do. Oh, God, I hope so. I, I think so. I think their time to shine will, will come soon enough. And they look just so creepy, too, because, I mean, you can't see their eyes. They just look like they've got hollowed out <laughs> holes for eyes. But if you look closely, yeah. you can see within the shadows there are little eyeballs in there, you know, as he's deflecting the guy's spear and then smashing his head in. But yeah. otherwise, they look almost like mummified huss, you know, like in the face. It's it's really strange. And you see the final guy. I think he was the one who actually shot the the arrow, trying to flee. Yep. And you know, just his head. You know, you see first you see his face intact with the the chakra, you know, out on the other side, and then his head just falls off. And very cool shot. And of course, Salat does the finishing touch. Where he's walking, he's walking away from the explosion in the action movie, you know, like, you know, <laughs> sorry for the mess, you know. <laughs> I didn't think about the framing of that uh, chakra, but you can see Salat there in the background, which means that was the chakra returning that actually hit the guy, hmm. right? Uh, no, I, I think actually Salat threw the chakra oh, through see. the guy's face. So The neck is just still attached in that one middle frame. Okay. You just can't see the evidence of the wound yet. It's so clean. Got it, got it. Oh, his finger is still up from having thrown it. Okay, got it. Okay. You're right, though, that it doesn't – we don't see it come back. We're going to see that at the very end of Berserk. He'll catch it <laughs> yeah. on his finger and be like, ah, He'll there catch it, it on his hat. On his hat. <laughs> no, finally, it'll, yeah, it'll fall on his head. <laughs> we tied everything up. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so now the guy has changed his tune and is basically shitting his pants. He's like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, that's incredible. These guys are monsters. <laughs> And uh, and so yeah, so Salat is basically there's 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 a couple things going on here that's kind of falls by the wayside in the next panel. But Salat is uh, basically showing this guy up, but like it's so impressively done that you know nothing's going to come of it. I mean, he's saying, yeah, we're going to return to our mission now. You know, basically Salat's in charge of the situation here is sort of my reading. You know, and he's walking away, but then everything flips again because we see that his mission has come to him. What's crazy is so they've got this special mission from uh, the emperor to, to find the falcon and capture him. And he's, they're returning to it, to it. That's, again, something I love about this volume. You get some things that could have taken, you know, uh, five volumes in another series. And here it's compressed into just two panels. It's like, uh, we, we're going to resume or search for the falcon. And then you get the horse and the falcon is right in front of them. And yeah, of course, I mean, I'll let Walter, you know, take it on from here. The general was questioning the worth of the Bakiraka in general. He was saying that they have failed in their mission. They've been put on this, what he considers to be just a, a fool's errand of trying to find super, something supernatural. Little does this general know that his emperor is himself is an apostle, so that the reader knows there's something else going on here. So not only does Silat show this guy up in terms of the worth of the Bakiraka, the reader knows that there is something else deeper happening with their mission. So, yeah, I think that's the significance here is that Silat is still maintaining his core mission, which is worthwhile, not just a – Yeah, thing. this is legit. I mean this is more right. than legit. If anything, you know, at this point we'd be questioning if the emperor really understands, you know, the yes. gravity of it, you know, of what this mission – And so Silat, you know, great shot, just his eyes, you know, as he sees that the, Griffith is right in front of him. He's doing this a lot lately. Uh, and yeah, another great shot of Griffith, uh, just uh, standing there astride on his horse, uh, looking very impressive. Yeah, I mean, he's gotten a series of upgrades. He's gotten so he went from being naked in Albion to getting the suit of armor. Now he's got a horse 
with a you know re- reflected suit of armor just like his. Well, the, yeah, the horse looks great. <laughs> the horse is- looks great. Same kind of, yeah, those dead eyes that Mira likes to draw on horses. <laughs> They're also um, mirroring Griffith's dead eyes in this case. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Griffith arrives front and center in the middle of this invasion, somehow walks right through all of the land-based army outside currently assaulting this place, and, you know, walked right through them, comes right up through to Silat. Silat sees him. Sonia passes Sonia. Silat recognizes him, you know, says it's, it's the Hawk of Light or Falcon of Light. What is he doing here? And then without any actual uh, you know, interlude, goes right past Silat, presumably speedily, because it's it goes right past him and Silat turns real quickly. Yeah. The implication there is that it happened really quickly, you know. Yeah. But it's not well, really I also quick. think it's like it, it's happening fast, but it's also like they're kind of frozen by whatever his magnetism or charisma is where he, you, you know, you catch yourself just staring like they're staring straight ahead. And, yeah, he's already passing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What's interesting is that we just, show, you know, got showed uh, a detailed action scene where uh, Silat and the Tapasa uh, saves that guy's life. And, you know, that whole thing. And then Griffiths comes and in two pages, he just kills him immediately. With this stab here through the eye of the general, his, his signature final attack here, um, this is really like that the house of cards for the Kushans. You know, it's all going to just start tumbling down from right here. It's also this whole episode, this two part episode, by the way, War Cry of the Wind Part One and Two. It's about the power of humans versus the power of inhumans, and, and how even with the skill and strength of the Bakiraka, you know, even they didn't stand much of a chance, and all that's about to happen here. They want to. Uh, they want immediately want to start firing on uh, Griffith, and they the second in command lieutenant presumably orders these guys to, to fire. Silat tries to stop them, presumably because he wants to take Griffith alive. That's hilarious at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the arrows fire, and you see this shot of him where the arrows are all around him. They crash to the ground, and everyone stares at the result. Even the Tapasa are like, <laughs> yeah, gritting their teeth. Sonia staring and. The, the result is, of course, that the arrows all just land on the other side of them. You know, they just all happen, happen to miss. I like then, that the second in command there is like almost like, you know, like fainted basically into the arms of the troops. It's like, yeah. oh, my God, you know, just fallen back. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they comment on, you know, what actually just happened. You know, not even a single arrow hit. Could he have dodged? No, it's not possible that someone could have dodged. It must have been a coincidence that they all. So they're kind of, kind of reasoning through what exactly just happened. The answer is. It just didn't hit. None of them hit. I think that's that's all there is to it. And, and if we want to dive a little deeper into that, I do think we could just pull what Skull Knight says in Volume Twenty Eight that you know he's untouchable at this that it's by human hands. Anyway. Now, are we going to get deeper into this down the line where it's like he's untouchable by human hands? No. And I think what is the comparison Skull Knight uses? It's like somebody story and author. Yeah, it's like somebody in the story trying to change the story, like write the story. Like you can't. Mm-hmm. It's not. That's not how right. it works. And, but what's interesting here is that Femto has powers like this that he can use actively that we've seen. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Is the reality that, you know, is it, is it more God hand tricks? Is, is fate really doesn't allow any arrow to touch him? Or is he actually like basically going Neo from the Matrix, making all those miss and making it look like he has that kind of power when it's really just another, you know, more demons making themselves look fancy, you know. You know what? What I find interesting is that it doesn't really matter in the right. end. Right? It could. It's. A, it could be a distinction without a difference. I think both of the things that you said are true. One's just higher level than the other, right? Uh, how did that happen? It happened because he has some kind of superior power. Either whether that's over humans, 
uh, or is an explicit tactical move that he made. Well, there's a difference between like, I'm trying to think of the right wording, like destiny or fate or the cosmos itself, you know, a no, no arrow can touch you versus uh, I got the power to knock arrows down, (laughs) you know, with my mind. It, It is a little, you know, different order of things, you know, like you said, one sort of a higher order version of, of, the same act yeah. what's what's sure is like even if presumably uh one of these arrows had hit him he would not have been harmed i think that's that's a point that's uh, important uh we actually uh get into that later on in the series uh with slan and the dragon slayer and you know uh ganishka right. and Vritanis. the point is even if a guy with a knife had managed to i don't know run up to him jumped and stab him in the throat probably he wouldn't have bled even if uh, Salat came up and slapped him right in the face <laughs> yeah, po- probably, and, um, and and so yeah, you know, the point of it is, these arrows did not hit him, and even if they did, it would have been to no avail. Mm-hmm. Yep. To cap things off, I think it's just Mira's way of demonstrating Griffith's superiority. Period. But not even bothering to show how it happened; it just happened. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with Silat bypassing him. And it also shows just to end is like his superiority. Is, uh, you know, we we get to see apostles who like will get hit and it doesn't stop them because they're monsters. But it like it's on another level here. It's just nothing. Nothing bothers him. He doesn't even flinch. This is when you're ready, you won't have to dodge bullets. It is. That yeah. is now at, you know. <laughs> you say I can dodge bullets? Okay. Uh, Zod, is the, Zod appears on the fray, you know, carving a, a, a place through uh, the cushions. Well, they're going to they're gonna fire again, and before they can and confirm that it wasn't a coincidence, <laughs> then we get right, Zod Right, sorry. Attacking. The second volley that never happens, yeah, because he, Zod carves his way through them. And we get to see, you know, confirm that it is Zod. to get a little shot of him. And... Continues lopping off heads. That's kind of the name of the game for this it's, episode. Well, it's cool to see him in his new. It's always cool to see new wardrobe for Zod after he transforms. Oh yeah, sure. And now he's dual wielding. You know, he drops yeah. a big, big old sword. He's got uh, an axe and a small sword. He liked the feeling of what happened up there on the hill of swords. Well, he it's almost like it's hands. like you're seeing him evolve in real time, where it's like, okay, that didn't work. <laughs> you know, the big swords that doesn't work for me anymore. Now I'm going to try this, and this is like practice until he can fight guts again. That axe just looks like a woodcutting axe. Like, it doesn't look like a like, very distinguished axe. <laughs> just well, I mean, it's, it's, it's odd. He's not exactly distinguished himself. Sword, <laughs> on the other hand, is kind of incredible. <laughs> like, it's like, where cool. did he get that? <laughs> I did like the idea of Zod sword shopping because you can see what that one definitely. Yeah, this one, I like it. <laughs> he lops off the head of the guy selling the sword to test it. <laughs> That'll do. So, yeah, um, the guy, the second or third in command at this point. Oh, it's the second in command still. You know, stand your ground. It's just uh, two horsemen, just Griffith and Zod. No big deal. Let's go for it. And that, of course, that doesn't work. Another one arrives on the on the fray. It's uh, Locus using his uh, lance to... Spear through one, two, three, four, five, six people at once, all falling down. I mean, that shot, Locus' introduction is uh, is incredible because you see that like bolt of light, and then you see these guys who all got their head pierced by this impossibly long lens. Looks like and it's then actually you see, seven. <laughs> and, yeah, and then you see the lens just going. I love the blood flying from the tip of it and the little the little spray at the top of that panel. That's pretty cool. Uh, what I like about this whole sequence here is that the apostles are gathering here to join up with Griffith. You know, slaughtering the Cushions, 
they're just kind of there. They're kind of there. They're caught in the middle of this afternoon exercise for them because they're all just here to, to meet up with Griffith. Um, Lucas unveils himself or takes his mask off saying that he's Locus and he was guided here by an oracle. Uh, he looks very creepy him. in this initial meeting. He, he looks much better later. He, yeah. he, he still retains that creepiness in, uh, I think, uh, I <laughs> wouldn't say every shot, a, but... More of like a handsome imposingness later, whereas here he looks like, you know, that, like kind of a reptilian. Honestly, when Mule first sees him, he's got the kind of same vibe. And, uh, you know, periodically he, he's shown, uh, he shows it again. Like I remember yeah. uh, when he sees, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Rickert in uh, Ritanis, uh, sorry, in uh, Falconia. Oh, yeah. He's also got some very creepy vibes at the time. And yeah. he's got exactly the same, like you said, it's perfect reptilian look. He's got well, really is that monster face yeah i'm really just talking about like sort of like his features in this shot and expression mm-hmm. it's not just the, the presence he has but like in this one it's like he, you know this is your first impression of him he looks sort of almost like a creepy guy and later you see oh he's actually like a very sort of like you he, he was a noble he's sort of a noble knight kind of figure that's been transformed into this monster he also has the apostle eyes, which is nice because, you know, it kind of confirms it at the time that this is not just a very skilled knight. This is an apostle that was here to, you know, swear fealty to Griffith, just like Zod I want to bring this up now because I don't know if you – do you guys remember when this episode first happened? And, you know, we have <laughs> and we have uh, Locust show up. There were people that thought these were like in some ways either representations – or even like re reincarnations, reincarnations of like the old Falcons. Like that, this was this is Corcus. This goes back to how creepy looking he is here versus later. You know, like oh, this is Carcass. You know, he's back. You know, in in a completely different form, using different weapons, and you know, being a different. I'm guy. not sure why it's Corcus because it looks nothing. It like looks him. nothing like him. This is and he's cool instead of not cool. This is just a total stretch. But this was a thing. This was just people trying to fit you know, square pegs into round holes they were familiar with, where it's like, oh, they're back, when it's like, nah, it's not about that, this is a whole new thing. But I just think it's, in retrospect, it's kind of hilarious, because there's nothing here. Bad ideas don't don't have an expiration. Grunbeld is big, so he's like Pippin. <laughs> you know, it's just like... <laughs> no, it's guts with the hair. Beyond that, there's also, I mean, for the longest time, and probably still in, in some corners of the internet, uh, people... We're not convinced these guys were apostles. So that's also oh, a thing. that's right. There was, I yeah, had... Every single one. Every single one. Yeah. From Locus to Rakshas to Grunbeld. Are we sure? Irvine, yeah. They're the special legendary dream fighters or something. Exactly. I remember shit yeah, like that. E- oh, my exactly. God. Because, you know, so we, we see them arriving and, like, for us, it's easy to say, well, you know, these are the apostles. But when you're the first... These aren't what apostles are like, though. I I know. I've seen quite a few apostles in my day. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you see Zod and there's this guy, and, and he does look uh, creepy and sinister and reptilian, like you said. But, you know, he's not a not right. Uh, you know, he's not, he doesn't have the point teeth and stuff like that. So some people were a bit doubtful about that at first and that's interesting to point it out he's got the eyes i don't i can't even believe there was ever a discussion of love <laughs> he's got like cat eyes you know it's like eh, maybe he's a witcher i don't know nah. <laughs> <laughs> and we will i mean we'll see uh later on as more of them show up it becomes pretty obvious what they are especially i mean when they so it's funny is he use of the word oracle here yeah. because uh it's more like uh i mean it's Dream. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a, a dream. dream. It's it's a falcon of light's dream, and it's basically oracle can also mean premonition, uh, but it's a bit confusing because in English uh, the word can also mean a person who gives out premonitions. So yeah, so you're right. That requires an explanation. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he means he had the, the dream. It's clear it's the same. I mean, if not the same, a recurring part of the falcon of light dream that the whole world had. Uh, a version of that drove events from volume 17 onward, you know? Yeah. Um, there's some stirring in the crowd as uh, they say, the Falcon of Light, that can't be. I heard that he died. There's no mistaking him. I saw his face in the victory parade in Wyndham. So this is really cool because we get like, you know, the commoners also connect what's happening here with their memories of Griffith. So the mission is working. The plan is working as intended. The people uh, in, in Shet really got around like there yeah like, yeah yeah well one lady was <laughs> up the high food chain enough to go there yeah i identified him in person <laughs> mm-hmm. uh two page spread of more uh, slaughtering happening sonia bites through her her ropes or sorry her bindings and, and runs up to him she wants to i'm assuming to confirm uh, that this is griffith the wind whispered that the world has begun to change as the end of the episode is a real beautiful two page. This is just the heyday of two page, like glamor shots, yeah. you know, <laughs> of characters. And she's talking about the wind had whispered this. And there's this very like, uh, astral looking wind around Griffith, uh, yeah. pushing his hair back as well. And the Cape as well. I thought that was cool. So we move on to, uh, war cry of the wind part two. And uh, I just noticed that, uh, Dark Horse uh, writes Millennium with a single N, which is actually oh, wow. a, a typo. So Sometimes I make that typo, too. Oh, I, yeah, whatever. You, but how, like many, a, how many times have you published it? Yeah, they're like a publisher, <laughs> okay. you know. It's, uh, <laughs> don't they have, like, proofreaders or something? Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Hey, that's why they're called typos. <laughs> so we open with uh, Zod and Locus uh, still butchering cushions in very detailed shots that look very good. You see the blood wounds erupting and stuff like that. The second in command is amazingly still standing and, like, you know, calling out orders. He's actually quite a hero. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the next page uh, shows us uh, Bakirak uh, weighing their options uh, with Silat prioritizing their mission of capturing Griffiths. Meanwhile, uh, Sonia is dazzled by Griffiths' beauty in a way that can be reminiscent of the time Casca first saw Griffiths in herself, you know. Um, mm. she, she finds him incredibly beautiful, not even human. It's a recurring thing with this uh, incarnation of uh, Griffiths. So, um, meanwhile, we see the, the two Tapasa who accompany Silat uh, leap past her to take down Griffiths from behind. Sona warns him and he bothers to look in their direction. I love that look. Yeah, he, he he just gives a side look, but he does not move. Yeah, and and so uh, they're rep- it's so contemptuous. <laughs> exactly, and they're repelled by something else, uh, a black ball of clothes that strikes them both in the chest, strong enough to send them flying back. So this is surprising because we were shown just minutes ago how inhumanly strong these and fast these guys are, but they're just you know thrown back you know. In, like that. So the, the close and force before them, insulting them as it does, and uh, reveals itself to be Rakshas. So his body, as we, we see here for the first time, is very unusual. It bends at 
unnatural uh, angles, and all we can see of his actual self is a, a mask. Just the fact that he unfolds from being like a, a ball into a like a human shape. Eventually, he was like a, a basketball, and he becomes <laughs> yeah. like a, a full size. It's more black goo. Fucking really, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's the original he's black, black goo fabric, guy, man. <laughs> yeah. So and, and yeah. So all we can see is his mask and. Uh, uh, very strikingly, it, it has three holes for the eyes. He's also a monster. He was uh, once a member of their clan, the Bakiraka, but was exiled many years ago. Like Locus, he came to see the Falcon of Light because he received the dream, the premonition. He is an apostle and has come to serve. But he's also an odd one. Uh, very unlike Locus of Zod, he praises Griffith's beauty, but he says he will someday cut off his head and make it his. But this just makes uh, Griffith smile. And until then, Raksha says he will let no harm comes to him. That's his favorite compliment <laughs> so <Yeah>. far. <laughs> exactly. Can we talk about that mask thing real quick? Uh, sure. It's a very enigmatic line. You know, his everyone else have offered dedication. His dedication is a little more mercurial, I guess. I wonder about that. You know, he comes to him. Ruckus comes to Griffith and says that he heard the Oracle or premonition. You're the Falcon of Light. He says you're lovely. Someday I'll lop off your head and make it mine. We know now that Ruckus has this fascination with masks. You know, he had his injured whenever he encounters the Tapasa again in volume 39 or 38, excuse me. And he gets a, gets a new one. He's bummed out when his mask breaks, gets a replacement for it. So he has this obsession or fascination with masks. The... Griffith we see in front of us is Femto with a skin mask on. I wonder if that's his fascination with Griffith's beauty, is that if it's related to his whole mask thing, that Griffith is a beautiful mask for Femto. Uh, it could be. could very well be. Um, I think, so we, we don't yet know his backstory, but I think there's obviously something to be, like it must center about, around the fact he's not, his face is never shown and actually cannot be shown in his current form. He's basically faceless. Uh, so he uses his masks and there must be something related to this, you know, uh, in, in his past that l- led him to, to sacrifice. So, yeah, it could very well be the case. It could also be, I, I think it has to, to do with uh, the facial appearance, you know, the, the, the face. It's not so much the head, which he says he'll cut off, but the face. I think that's what right. his obsession is about. So, yeah, I think that's a good explanation. It can all, could also be just the fact that Griffith has a very pretty face. And uh, Rakshas yeah. desires to get it. Uh, what was sure is, uh, I know people have uh, speculated in the past for a long time that Rakshas would betray Griffiths and try to assassinate him or but something. There's a moment of truth when Griffith is about to kill gods, Rakshas will fly in and cut his head off. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's a little literal <laughs> reading of yeah. this flowery language. I, I don't really think that's going to happen. So, well, yeah. do we... Do we do we think it's even possible for no. what Rakshas is saying? No, not for him to betray Griffith, but is there other? Is there anything to this beyond flowery language? Like, could it someday? Could Griffith basically like be like here? You know, <laughs> like basically give him you know some form or some memento representing his face because he just is like I'm going to be femto all the time now. Well, I mean, that's, uh, that's, uh, very speculative, but I mean, I guess, <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't think he could just like take off the mask, no, like no, a Scooby Doo villain. Is there, is there any way for this to come to fruition, you know, other than this is 
this is just his way of complimenting him. You know, is there even any possible... I, I don't really think so, to be honest. I don't yeah. think he could... Uh, I think this is just a way to establish that Rakshas is weird. Yeah. yeah. Which, <laughs> which, to be fair, he is. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't think he could somehow get the face or something like that. I mean, if he actually commissioned a mask for him that looked like his... Here you go, Rakshas. <laughs> for your service. Why... We could really deep dive on Rakshas, and we have before... I think the reason he has this mask thing is probably because his role in the Bakiraka was as some kind of face switcher or some kind of you know yeah. subterfuge kind of person, He's an ass- right? Yeah, I mean, they're assassins. Assassin type thing, right? Switches faces. And now now his result in face is this mask that he always wears. So he has an obsession with faces or wearing masks. And I think it's just he admires Griffith's beauty and as someone who and wears masks all the time. You know, without, for someone without a face, you know, he admires the beauty of a face. He's potentially just some sort of formless, you know, yeah. mass of bone and goo under there, you know. So, yeah, he's just – he's got eyes he lost presumably. His identity. But, yeah, the face can move anywhere. Yeah, to that point of his strange body, we we see him uh, extend an arm uh, in the bottom panel uh, as he cackles away, you know. And uh, and only a sharp thorn is shown protruding from the close. So it's, uh, again, um, a clue early on that he's just very, he very weird, like you know. He looks like a tone berry in that, in that shot. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he's just, I mean, his arm does not look like a human arm, you know, no matter how you look at it. So as a Tapasa attack again, uh, we're given a full page showing him evading the moves pretty much effortlessly. We then step back from the action and see the battle from a bird's eye view before plunging back in uh, to see some Christian soldiers barring one of the gates to prevent their enemies' uh, escape. But something suddenly smashes through, and on the next page, we see a giant foot step down as a lumbering man bends down to pass the thorn open gate. Uh, so the soldiers are taken aback because this giant man is wearing an intricate armor, you know, uh, very, very massive, uh, with a helmet that's in the shape of a dragon that they actually compare to a naga, which is a, an Indian uh, mythology monster, snake monster. So uh, as they try to stand the ground, he strikes his enormous shield with his oversized warhammer and shoots a cannonball through their ranks. Uh, which means, you know, that's right. Guts has competition now. <laughs> Cannons are in town. So I think it's cool that they show us the mechanism. Like he kind of swings, uh, pivots his warhammer <laughs> yeah. to strike a, the, the whatever it is back there that's igniting the cannon. I think that's cool. Yeah, for sure. And his armor is very detailed and very cool. I mean, I love it. It's a shield, everything. Uh, we then see uh, two blades come out of the shield and he starts uh, massacring them basically with a hammer cool. and, and shield. And, and yeah, he's like his armor is is very nice. It's one of my favorite designs in the series. Yeah, it's really cool. And I like that last shot at the bottom, very reminiscent of guts. Actually, just that expression and uh, as he cuts through them. Yeah, I have a question that could dovetail into a critique, which is that when you guys first read this, were you do you think you were fully aware of like the dimensions? Of Grunveld, how big he actually is, that he is a giant. They say he's a giant, right? Right. But yeah. did yeah, you know that he was actually a giant, like, oh, this is a 20-foot-tall man giant versus, like, he just looks like a huge guy here to me. I think that's a problem. I, I, I mean, it's a good thing you, you pointed out, but maybe not. Maybe that's not the best place to point it out. I'll say why is because... I feel like his size varies depending mm. on the occasion. And it happens several times where he looks 
big but not that big and then he looks like huge uh, you know like four men tall so yeah and yeah i think there's a bit of uh, disparity depending on the scenes so yeah here well, looked- my question with that is that is that a superpower of his is that all the <laughs> giants can make themselves as big as they need to be or is that mira's superpower to <laughs> to change the sizes needed? when they say giant I, I really do think they just mean he's really tall and we get a sense of how tall he really is in volume 23 when it explicitly shows how tall he is. Did this also evolve in Mira's mind, too, where he's like, you know what? I want to make a class of these guys like giants because we see there's like a whole group of them later. Yeah. That he's leading, that there's actually like basically a giant's battalion. I'll say in the shot of him cutting them down. He looks like twice as tall as them, but yeah, but it's it's a bit it's a bit uh, misguiding because uh, not misguiding, sorry, um, misleading. Yeah, misleading. Thank you, uh, because he's cutting them off and they're like uh, you know being lifted off the ground because they're cut off. So I think that might make them you know higher relative to him on the page as it would be if they were just standing on their feet. And you can see there's a guy standing on his feet and Grumble looks. I would say about, you know, twice as tall, maybe almost twice as tall as a guy. So I feel like that's basically what it's supposed to be. Usually maybe two guys on top of each other. Uh, that's the size he's supposed to have. But yeah, sometimes, I mean, if you look throughout the whole series, sometimes he looks, he looks bigger than that. So I don't know. I don't really have an explanation for it. I just think that's Mura's not necessarily being super, uh, you know, fastidious with that and checking out his height precisely every time right well i i actually wonder if it's a change because there's almost it's almost misleading on several occasions to make him look smaller than he is like even when he first bursts through the door he's kind of you know he looks kind of stocky almost you know and he's stepping over this body but it just you know when you see him later at a certain point it's like it becomes clear oh this guy towers over horses but and it could be represented in some of these shots but they also could be perspective that's how i was reading it and i might have been misreading a lot of these as perspective when it's like oh he's that I big i think he's he's just supposed to be a big guy <laughs> uh, as, as i'll tell you as someone who has read the grunbeld novel oh no pull a passage real quick um, no no don't uh, no, do that's that okay. do I, not... I, I retract my comment do not oh that's what i call big his large penis, appropriate for the size of his body, Come on. was beginning uh, to stiffen. It was too soon to say if it was towering tall. I don't want to do this anymore. Already easily over twice the size of that of an average adult male. <laughs> They're just measuring. Why are you doing this? <laughs> size size matters. This this is what you had in your 4,000 <laughs> notes, words and notes? <laughs> it's not actually. I actually was actively searching for my review of the novel. Oh, my God. Oh, Lord. Um, I do like when Grunbeld is introduced here, when he actually goes through the, the door, the, the, he pulls a guy's, he plucks a guy's head off yeah. of his body with the point of his um, uh, warhammer, <laughs> yeah. which I thought was cool. A little yeah. funny moment. Well, there. you know what? That's actually the moment that probably has the best perspective for how huge he is. Yeah. I'm sorry to bring this up, but yeah, you, clearly the warhammer is gigantic there. Like just the very tip of it only touches the guy's head. So that's actually the best indicator that like, oh, wow, that, that thing's like a battering ram, you know, that this guy's swinging. Yeah, I think there's a matter of perspective, like I said, and the fact they are being split open and flung in the air might make them look bigger, you know, or, you know than they are in reality. I don't know. What, what's sure is you see he's actually got two of them pinned to the hammer. Yeah. Uh, so 
I mean, that goes to show, I, I like to think of Inga as being like between two and three times bigger than a normal guy, uh, which is, you know, pretty... That's actually, pretty, when you think about it, that's just practically speaking, something that's hard to draw consistently anyway, even if you were upset, you know, like if he's pulling out, you know, rulers and, you know, measuring helmets and then trying to draw him, you know, in line with that. Yeah. A, it's, it's a very unnatural thing to kind of draw. I think the best comparison we can get, um, one of the best ones is when he's facing against Guts in uh, Volume 26. And he does look pretty, pretty huge uh, compared to Guts, uh, you know, on that yeah. stuff. He's like, he's like twice taller than Guts, basically. So, and Guts is a pretty big guy, you know. So, but again, can it be just a matter of perspective? He's also very, he's shown next to Zod and he's much, much taller than Zod. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know, but not twice as tall as Zod, but quite tall. So, I don't know. Conclusion. He's tall. Yeah. He's a big guy. Yeah, I mean, just to, to you know, get to the bottom of it, he's, he's pretty, pretty fucking big. Walter, do you have any measurements for, you know, the actual size of his Johnson? It was twice. So, it says it's, it's twice the size of an average Of an male. average man. That seems like it would actually be kind of, so you know. It's not, not that, that big. Like, you know. I mean, the average size is 6.5. I think that's right. Maybe it's 5.5. So we're talking a foot long. He's like John Holmes, but he's twice as tall. So that's not going to look great. Sorry. Sorry, Grunbeld. Sorry, Az. <laughs> Do we have to talk about this? <laughs> let's let's move on. Size matters not. Let's move on. All right. Yeah. Sure. Uh, zombies show up. So no, no. Yeah, no. So one of the soldiers uh, rushes into the barracks. Uh, and I, I like to call that shot is framed by the way we see we see him run into us from the inside. So he tries to he's trying to allow the soldiers that everybody should get into the battle because it's uh, it's critical. But he comes across a scene of uh, horror. Uh, all, all the soldiers are dead, and uh, he sees silhouettes uh, through smoke and a broken wall uh, at the back. Is, is that a leafy hand there? Is it the Mandragora? <laughs> they're zombies. They're zombies. That's what people thought at the time. Of and uh, yeah, just to show how wrong we routinely are. <laughs> we, we we can we can tell that uh, one of these shapes is holding a, a dead soldier's head. And uh, yeah, while nothing is revealed right there and then, uh, it's clear that these are not normal opponents. And of course, they turn out to be apostles who all so came to uh, pledge their allegiance to Griffiths. So we then take on a bird's eye view again, and uh, we actually literally see uh, a small bird perched on a, on a pole holding a Midland's flag. And we hear someone thought uh, that uh, the falcon of light, savior of the world, and as a bird uh, flies off away from Shet, that thought is tempered that perhaps he's something else. So we see the bird land on a girl's hand far away from the town, and uh, we see her spirit leave the bird and get back into her own body. She was possessing the animal. Uh, we see that she's wearing a very traditional witch outfit. She's accompanied by a female elf, and she explains to the elf why she had to possess the birds to get close to that scene is because if she were using a body of light directly, uh, it would have been dangerous because of how much power emanates from Griffiths. So at this point in the story, these words and that scene in general uh, are hard to understand. But they are, again, uh, a hint of what's to come, which is a, a theme for this volume. So we see the girl 
whose name we don't know yet, but who will turn out to be Shiroke, we see her recite uh, part of the prophecy, which we had first heard from the Knights of the Holy Iron Chain in uh, Volume 14, when they come across the Red Lake. She says, The angel shall be a falcon of darkness, boss, master of the sinful black ship, and king of the blind white ship, the one who shall bring an age of darkness upon the world. So we cut back to uh, Shet again. Uh, we see Sonia taking the scene before her. Uh, the Kushans have all been hacked to death. There's blood everywhere and a stench that numbs the mind. But while it should be a scene of horror, something in the setting sun, seeing all these supernatural fighters kneeling in front of Griffiths, it feels to her like a painting. And the episode ends on a shot of Griffiths' face with these words, we were now surely in the midst of an extraordinary tale. So this also sets a recurring theme from now on, which is that of a fairy tale-like quality to Griffiths and his endeavors, with a sentiment of inevitability to it, like the story of which he's a hero. This two-page spread is really just blowing my mind. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, uh, I believe it's a setting sun. I know it doesn't matter. I'm trying to visualize it in my head. Um, yeah, it's a setting sun. Yeah. Yeah, I just really like the, the, the casting from the sun, uh, the, the shading that's consistent throughout all the figures. Like a lot of work went in there to cast mm. that shading correctly. And I think it, the effect is really cool. He does look like a painting. You know, it goes yeah. well with the, the text. Yeah, it really does look like a painting. It's, very, it's another shot uh, that I find very striking and I think people often uh, show to demonstrate, uh, you know, the art in the series. And in the same way, so that last shot of Griffiths from the side – it's a very, very iconic. I think it's all fun. He's been reproduced, not exactly the same one, but you know, a similar one uh, by Mira uh, a bunch of times. Yeah, and I've, I've seen colorations of it. I think uh, not just fan ones, but official ones for like probably the card game and things. Yep. But that's yeah, a very sort of iconic Griffith shot, and kind of cool that it's like a close up of what you see of him on the horse there. The composition as well, like the the camera area, the frame is very low. With the, the four so new get, lieutenants there on the ground and the bodies. Yeah. yeah, I just like the bodies being in the foreground like that, and, and there's like this depth to the images as, as a result of that framing. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, what I, I mentioned this in the last podcast, but I wanted to say it now is that you know Griffith is back. He wants to obtain a kingdom. And there's also this new dynamic at play is, is how he'll get that. And with Zod joining him in Albion, it was clear that apostles would have some kind of fealty towards him. And this episode shows what the scope of that is like. You know, there are not just Zod, there are many apostles that will ally themselves with Griffith. And it's creating an army, an army of apostles, which is not something that really, I mean, I don't think anybody really thought about the possibilities of at the time. Outside of the Dreamcast game, when Guts says that you know Griffith is forming an army of apostles, which I'm not sure how we'd know, but it's in the script. Now we're seeing the result of that, or what that really looks like. And I mean, in retrospect, it's one of the things. Like someone, I'm, I'm sure people did just intrinsically interpret this that way that the God Hand were building an army because that actually makes sense in retrospect. And now they're kind of being called to service. You know, the chickens have come home to roost. It's time to live up to your end of the bargain. You got drafted. Yeah, you know, well, it's like you've been you've been having your fun. Now it's time to do what we actually changed you to do. There's also something very simple in the name apostle. You know, an apostle is a, a follower, someone who who follows someone else, and so. We learn at that time that the apostles are meant to follow uh, Griffiths, you know, Femto. 
I should have mentioned it in sequence, but I forgot to. And that is that the Dreamcast game uh, story, the Mandragora section, actually takes place directly after Guts uh, leaves. Right around the time of Shet is when that would have taken place uh, in the story sequence. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I remember we were like, it's in volume 23, like between two episodes, we determined it would make the most sense because the seasons change. <laughs> like we, mm, we got right, super, right, right, we right. got super nerdy on this one time, but, uh, you know, but it's, it's actually in one of Mira's comments, I think is what he says. Oh, does he actually mention, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, one more thing I wanted to say before we moved on though, was just sort of the revisit that the introduction of Shirke actually. Oh, totally. I had some things yeah, there too. And what she says about Griffith and as very, uh, thoughtfully mentioned how you know this would have more significance as time went on and i just wanted to dovetail off that to point out how you know yeah at the time it's someone saying oh like oh it was really powerful and you would just read it as well yeah no shit he's really powerful he's the most powerful guy you know but in retrospect reading this her saying that you know is has so much more weight and gives so much more scale to his power because we've seen other powers and we've seen how she responds to them and different, you know, scales of power, basically. So instead of it just being, yeah, Griffith's really powerful, it kind of puts it in perspective. You know, you at least have some idea of that power relative to other, you know, ethereal and supernatural power in the world. And it, it just gives it more weight in retrospect. And I think that's a really cool thing Mira did to give like this sort of scale to it. So it's not just like, Oh uh, yeah, this guy's got magic power and there's other magic power and you know, we're going to see what happens when we smash them together, you know, which is better. I think the the placement of Shirke here, I think it's more about framing what Sonya sees as this scene of beauty yeah. and that we're in the middle of this extraordinary tale. Like Shirke is there to provide the the textbook context for the, the Falcon of Darkness and the Falcon of Light. And whereas Sonia is enraptured by this, this, this scene itself. Well, you know? just her introductory lines, the whole, oh, that's the Falcon of Light, the savior of the world, you know. But she immediately has that sort of cynical, or so you're meant to think, kind of attitude, you know. Yeah, or perhaps. Yeah, yeah so it's very cool. Uh, in retrospect, Volume 22 like is, I said it earlier, this fireworks here. Because they're blowing out all these new characters that are major players even up till now. All these new apostles. Shirke gets a first appearance. Of course, she doesn't get a proper introduction until volume 24. Is that right? Uh, yes. 23. No, it's 24. My bad. You're right. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, blowing it out of the water, pulling out all the stops for the introduction of Millennium Falcon. I just wanted to say I think that's really cool that all this stuff happens all at once. Yeah. Yeah, again, I mean, uh, 22 is really packed with, with, uh, developments. It all goes on. It happens very fast. And there's also a lot of, uh, you know, little things that are sprinkled through that become very significant later on or will become significant later on. So, you know, the, the demon child, uh, Shirke, the apostles, uh, pledging fealty, uh, Silat and the, you know, the Tapasa witnessing, uh, Griffith's actions firsthand. All these things, uh, take on, uh, Another meaning later on, you know, even even uh, Rickert, uh, you know, him witnessing what happens with Griffiths and Gus, everything has a, an impact later on. So, and, and it all happens very quickly. I mean, from the point of Gus being the Black Swordsman to rescuing Casca to deciding to go on a journey uh, to find Alpha, it all you know happens you know in a very short amount of time. 
Well, that's where we're going to stop for today. I know there's two more episodes left in Volume 22. That's the two-part flashback for Farnese and Serpico, but we're just not going to have time for it today. I will love to revisit those sometime in the near future and close out Volume 22, but we made a lot of progress for this volume, and if you've listened this far, thanks, and we'll be back as soon as possible. The Skullcast is a production of Skullknight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash sknet. Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Poila, who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. Poila has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. Once again, that's patreon.com sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net slash forum. Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond quickly. Thanks for listening.